Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really needs your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene! Run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, If you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. Hey there, listeners. This is producer DJ Daniel. The following episode was recorded before the horrible events in Monterey Park. The team will release an episode addressing the situation once more details have emerged. Thank you and enjoy. It's Lunar New Year's! Yay! Happy New Year's! It's 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 the New Year's special. It's me, Mia. I've got I've got Shireen with me. Yeah. How how are you doing? I guess I guess it's I guess it's not the New Year yet while we're recording it, but it will be by the time you hear this. That counts. That counts. Yeah. Um. I I'm good. I'm. I got a cat recently, and I called <gasps> her Bunny. And oh. then I learned later that this year is the year of the rabbit. So yeah. <laughs> I feel really happy about that. Aww, I feel it's really pumped year. for this year. Yeah, exactly. Oh, <laughs> so I'm good. I'm good. That's a, that, that's an amazing. Have, having new cat is an amazing way to start any year. Yes, yes, I agree. This is very exciting. Do you know what else is very exciting? <gasps> Transitions. Please. They pay me to do this. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> for some reason. All right. This 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 year, we're going to talk about Chinese restaurant syndrome and the whole sort of anti-MSG craze. Yes. So that was, that's always been so big. I don't know. I grew up in like a, I don't know, a diverse area in San Diego, but we would always go to pho like regularly. And the no MSG was like all over the menu and everything. It's like this thing that. I mean, in every restaurant I went to, basically, it was just like, come to us. There's no MSG. So I'm really curious how it started, because growing up, I was like, OK, MSG is bad, I guess. You know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah, I feel like it wasn't it wasn't weirdly it wasn't as intense where I was growing up. But that was like, I don't know, it was it was a very white suburb. Mm-hmm. But and mm-hmm. people people were still freaked out about MSG, but it wasn't. But like the the the, the Asian restaurants didn't like talk about it ever. Mm. I don't know, but it was still it was still very sort of like like I remember I would go to like eat dinner with like white families and they'd be talking about MSG and I was right. like what yeah <laughs> like, it was a hot topic okay. for a good amount of time yeah 
having now talked about MSG for a bit, we should we should ask like what what is MSG? Yes. What and is it? the answer. Okay, so MSG stands for monosodium glutamate, which is it's just a salt basically. Okay. It's salt with like glutamate in it. It has a bunch of umami in it. Um, I'm I'm gonna read this thing from Kenji from Serious Eats because every 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 single article start that starts about this has like this exact paragraph in it. So I'm just going to read it instead of trying to rewrite this paragraph that everyone's written. I respect that. I respect that. MSG is a sodium salt of glutamic acid, an A-amino acid. It was first isolated in 1908 by Japanese biochemist Kikue Ikeda, who was trying to discover what exactly gave dashi, the Japanese flavor broth with komba, Japanese giant sea kelp, its strong savory character. Turns out that komba is packed with glutamic acid. It was Akita who coined the term umami, which roughly translates as savory, to describe the glutamic acid and other similar amino acids. Until that point, scientists had only discovered the other four flavors sensed by the tongue and the soft palate. Salty, sweet, sour, and bitter. By 1909, pure crystallite MSG extracted from the abundant kelp in the sea around Japan was being sold under the brand name Ajinomoto, roughly, element of flavor. The company exists to this day. Now, keep that in mind. That's going to be important to the last part of the story. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in the meantime, you know, around around, around 1908, it, w- once this is discovered, it turns into this sort of enormous industry. Um, mm-hmm. Here's from a, a, a pretty good Men's Health article about it. By the 1940s, a number of American companies were producing MSG domestically for the consumer, the most famous being Accent. Okay, there, there's like... It's spelled... Ac- it's, it's Accent, but it's spelled A-C apostrophe C-E-N-T. The apostrophe. That's not. That's, yeah. <laughs> no. No. That's. I, I, you lost me. Yeah. No. Accent. Yeah. Which was out. It's. It's. Yeah. I. Uh, advertising is a bleak place. Oh yeah. <laughs> that's. That's a different episode. I think. Maybe it's part well, of this one too. Partially. Yeah. Yes. Also partially yeah. this episode. But. Yeah. The most famous one being accent, which was advertised as pure monosodium glutamate that quote makes fl- food flavors sing. Various food magazines and community cookbooks featured the additive as an ingredient in the likes of fried chicken wings and barbecue sauce recipes. By 1969, 58 million pounds of MSG were being produced in the U.S. per year, says food historian Ian Mosby, Ph.D., for an entire generation. The ingredient was presented in a dizzying array of food products, breakfast cereals, TV dinners, frozen vegetables, baby food, and soup, produced by beloved brands such as Campbell's and Swanson which today offer foods, products free of MSG additives. And, okay, if you think about this for a second, it's actually really weird that MSG is thought of as a Chinese thing. Mm. Because, like, okay, MSG, all told, has only been around for, like, 100 years, right? Yeah. And it's heavily used in the U.S. for, like, 30 or 40 years. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not in, it's not really in China for that much longer than it's in the U.S., and it's used in just, like, a bunch of American food. How did that start? Do we know how that association started and continued? Yeah, like, we'll we'll get it. It, it, mo- it mostly has to do with like it has to do with restaurants, and it specifically has to do with the part that we're getting to about this letter, which is weird. And so I, I will say, like, there, there are a lot of Chinese families that like just use MSG for like their cooking. Mm-hmm. Um, my 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 house never did it because we're lazy, and most of our cooking involves like as few ingredients and prep as possible. So yeah. we just like. I think it's also really in uh, uh, Vietnamese food. I feel like uses it a lot too. That's yeah. that, that was my first association with it. So I just associate. I mean, because I'm I was I don't know fourteen. I just was yeah. like, okay, this is Vietnamese. Uh, but that's really interesting to just know. Like, 
Well, it's originally Japanese to too. And like, yeah, I mean, it's Asian. It's yeah, it's Asian. yeah, yeah. I don't know, but like, it, it is just, it is just, it's just interesting. Like the U, like people in the U.S. were just like, I don't know. It's like in it's it was in everything. People in the U.S. were also just using it to cook food. This is also a thing that like people in China use a lot too. So it, it's not that like Chinese people don't do it. It's just that like. Everybody, like the moment everyone got it, they were like, "Oh my god, this makes our food taste better. We yeah. should use more of it." Of course. I mean, yeah. I'm I'm assuming once it got demonized, it was like, "Oh, this is a Chinese thing." But I don't know for sure. Yeah, so yeah. I'll, I will be patient. Yeah. So this is this is in fact the next thing. So nobody really cared about it until 1968 rolled around. Wow. So for those 60 years, MSG was like, yeah, everyone just used it. King. Nobody. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm forgetting where I'm, I'm going to read apart from this journal article and I've forgotten to put in what journal it's from because I'm a hack and a fraud. Uh, I think it's the journal Natural Health. 60% sure about that. That sounds right to me. <laughs> yeah, sure. It's, it's from it's from some journal. Some doctors wrote it. Quote, in the spring of 1968, Dr. Robert Homan wrote to the New England Journal of Medicine asking the assistance of the journal's readership in, in identifying the source of a phenomenon that Dr. Guo labeled the Chinese restaurant syndrome, CRS. Numbness of his back and neck palpitations and general weakness after he consumed meals in Chinese restaurants. Dr. Guo hypothesized that the source of his syndrome might be a reaction to the soy sauce, the cooking wine, the high sodium content of the food, or to the flavor-enhancing monosodium glutamate, MSG. Within two months, the journal received a flurry of letters from readers who had noticed a similar phenomenon after eating restaurant-prepared Chinese food. So this is the start of, mm. of this whole thing. And there's one thing I need to point out right away that th is in almost every single article about this that is wrong, which is that this, th this, this article says that he's talking about Chinese food, which is true. But very specifically, and this and this is this is going to be very important in about 10 minutes. Well, I don't know. 10 minutes. It's going to be important soon, which is he specifically has a thing about how this is about northern Chinese food. Hmm. And, you know, this is something that's something that everyone everyone sort of misses. The, the, the other thing that's interesting about this is that, you know, he 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 says it could be MSG, but, you know, he, he's treating MSG exactly like all of the rest of the other stuff that's in this that's in the food. Right. He lists soy sauce, he lists cooking wine, maybe he's like, okay, maybe there's too much salt, right? Like, he, he's not really doing an MSG thing, but everyone who reads this immediately focuses on the MSG. Okay, so before I started researching this, I had heard that this whole letter was actually fake and was oh. actually a prank. And, you know, th this is this is a thing that's like, it, it is, it's kind of like, okay, so the, the, the story behind this was that it was supposed to have been a prank by a white guy named Dr. Steele who made it up as a joke. And this is a sort of like a folk. It, like, OK, so this story is not true. The story I'm mm -hmm. about to say is not true. It, it, it turns out this letter is actually real. But there was there was basically a, a, a story that went around that it was this guy named Dr. Steele who had made it up as a way to get published in a journal for like a bet mm. because like Dr. Steele like claimed responsibility for it. And that got out to researchers. But it I turns, see. yeah, and so for a bit, everyone was like, oh my god, this whole thing was started by a prank. But it turns out that's also not true. So it, it, uh, This American Life figured out that Dr. Robert Homanguo is a real guy. Uh, Dr. Steele had pretended that he, he made, said that he made it up the name. It's not true. There's a real guy. They talked to his family and his colleagues, and all of them were like, oh no, Guo like, wrote this thing. And 
interestingly, there's a lot of racism here, too, because Dr. Steele had claimed that Homankua, which is OK. So th- this is where things get weird. Um, I'm, I'm saying Gua because that's how you actually pronounce it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's spelled H-O-M-A-N-K-W-O-K. Whoa. Yeah. OK, so th- this that's is this is thought. some. That's not what I thought. <laughs> yeah. So this is some Wade Giles bullshit. The previous attempt to sort of Romanize Chinese mm-hmm. was this thing called Wade Giles. And it, it is the bane of my existence. It's dog shit. Hi, this is Mia in post. I made a mistake here. KWOK is actually the standard Cantonese spelling of Gua. Uh, sorry about that. I am a dipshit who does not speak Cantonese. Uh, yeah, enjoy the rest of the show. They heard someone say Gua and were like, this is KW. It's like, no, no, it's not. Please. That's, that's oh. so, that's bad. It's literally that's the worst. Bad. Like if, 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 you, if you ever, you know, so sometimes if, you'll, if, you're, if you're looking at Chinese things, you'll see something that's just spelled really weirdly. Like, mm-hmm. or for example, like, the way that Chiang Kai-shek is spelled is actually like, like is, is actually a Wade Giles thing. Like there, there's, there's a whole bunch of like things that are like that. that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That you can find. Um, I don't know that that's, I mean, that explains a lot, but yeah. It's, well, and, and, and part, part of the other thing that's happening too here is that like, so, and then this is also gonna be important later. Kuo is, is a, is a, a Cantonese last name. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's it gets really really confusing really quickly if you don't know what's going on because if 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 you're reading a, if you're reading a word that's in Chinese in the U.S. it could either be in Mandarin or in Cantonese and it also could be either written with the, the terrible right. Wade Giles one or it could be in Pinyin which is like the the one that's actually sort of usable. Um, but Doctor Steele, because so again the, the 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 way it's written is H O M A N K W O K. And Dr. Steele claims that he wrote it to be like human crock of shit, like he, ho man crock. Yeah. Excuse me? I people like, Dr. people believed Dr. him. Dr. Steele needs like, to be. Yeah, well, he's dead. So fuck him. Again. Uh, yeah. I yeah. Don't know. That's that's so disgusting. Yeah. Like this is this is so racist. And it's like, oh, God. you know, but this like people people believe this for a while because mm-hmm. yeah i don't know but okay so eventually people figure out that it's not true and i i'm going to read something from from the this american life piece where they talk about how they figured out that it was actually like that homenguo was like actually a real guy mm-hmm. and when you read the original letter there are details that seem more likely to come from her father which is aqua's uh, father than from howard How- howard steals the doctor like when he said he moved to the U.S., which the real Dr. Guo did, and how he's very specific, the syndrome happens with northern Chinese food. In the 60s, how many white guys in Philadelphia could have made that distinction? Also, Homan Guo is an actual Cantonese name. What are the odds that Dr. Steele threw together random sounding Chinese syllables to arrive at that? So, okay, I read that and I had a revelation. I I cracked this case wide the fuck open. I figured it out. I figured out what was going on with this letter. Okay, I'm so, so excited for this. This is I, okay. I, I've been hyping this up for like hours. I'm but, so but, excited. So some BTS of this. We have like a group chat essentially, and I did. I wasn't sure if I can make this recording, but then Mia dropped that that bomb, being like. I have this big break breakthrough and I was like, I, I got to be there. I just got to be there. And so I kicked James out because James couldn't make the yeah. time I could make. <laughs> and so here I am. Yeah, I apologize. Right. I, I have, I, I have, I have not told Shireen what the breakthrough no, is. So I this am is 
You're Very all going to the same time. Very excited to hear. Yes. Okay. So, Homan Guo is Cantonese, right? Mm-hmm. And he specifies in this letter that this is about northern Chinese food. My thesis right here, right now, is that this whole letter is actually about is actually about Cantonese anti-northern sentiments. Oh. This is a whole ass thing in China. So uh, Canton or like the, the, the region that was called Canton, the West is like where Cantonese people are. This is like this is the very south of China. Right. There is a whole ass thing in China that like people from the north, people from the south hate each other. Um, it's actually very weird. So my, my family is like half from the north, half from the south. And like when my mom was growing up, she like she would like get made fun of for how she like rolled dumplings because people were like, oh, you roll dumplings like a southerner. And she's like. <laughs> it is a whole fucking thing it's like people That's, hate I each mean, other yeah <laughs> i mean how else how would you know those intricacies you know what i mean unless you were from there or like had history there That's yeah well i mean i would say th- th- this is the thing that, that that's persisted in the u.s too you, you still you still run into this stuff like there, there there are like there are definitely like cantonese restaurants where like you probably shouldn't speak mandarin they're like there's uh, there's like this is this is still a thing it's not really talked about very much because it's like it, it, it's it's kind of an internal Chinese thing, but you know you, the, the one place you actually really got to see this. You got to see this from the Hong Kong, during the Hong Kong protests in both sides because, like, okay, so it, it, there there there's a strain of the sort of like, like there, there's a strain of Chinese nationalism that's very sort of like it was doing this like really virulent sort of like anti-Southern racism mm-hmm. from you know you get this from a lot of the Chinese nationalists on the CCP side. There's another faction of like the Hong Kong protesters whose like thing was like we're not actually Chinese because we're not like the Northerners who are communist and like evil, which which is really right. funny because yeah. like you know like okay the if 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 you if you run through the actual history of communism in China it's like okay like the like one 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 of the, one of the largest communist like strikes that ever happened was in Hong Kong like yeah. <laughs> sure fine yeah. but you know but it, and obviously like i'm i'm simplifying all of this enormously because it's very complicated it, there's a lot of regional shit that's going on here yeah but so your the- your thesis is that the, the person that started all of this was like maybe like from the south or like just like yeah yeah i mean that, that is yeah. that is definite like that is that is like the like that is the most cantonese ass name i've ever heard like that, that guy that guy that guy is definitely from southern china and yeah my, my thesis is specifically it's this cantonese guy going hey fuck those northerners i hate their i hate their asses i hate their food their food ain't shit wow. eating it makes me sick but be, because because this is the u.s the, the subtlety of this gets lost mm-hmm. and everyone just runs with it as like chinese restaurant syndrome even though i, I but this is the, i i this is the this is my theory. This is this is like this is like kind of semi-obscured, like Chinese, like internal yeah, grudge that's the making. Origin point. Like, you, like knowing the origin point makes a lot more sense now. To be honest, like, why yeah. would it just be some random? Like, why would he specify a region, like a very yeah. specific region? That, that's just I don't it's, know. Yeah. I don't know that 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 that's my theory. I I could be wrong about this, but all it, it fits with all of the details. Yeah. So. Yeah. It, pans, it checks out. It checks out, I think. Yeah. So, OK. All right. So so th- this this letter happens and there's like a flurry of letters of other people talking about this. And. OK, I want to talk about why this got picked up the way it does. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to read a bit the, more. This is still in 68. Yeah, this is this is still in 68. Okay. I, I'm, I'm going to read from so every single article in this also goes exactly the same way. So I'm, I'm going to read from the men's health version. So you get this section of it before I talk about why it's, I think like not sufficient to capture what was happening. Mm-hmm. Mosby describes the late fifties as a time of heightened anti-Chinese sentiment. 
By the 1960s, domestic and international politics had shifted towards a fairly clear anti-communist agenda. In fact, he says, during this time, anti-Chinese sentiments was, were so widespread and accepted that most Americans didn't consider their apprehension to be racial bias. Now, this is true as far as it goes, but we need to go to ads. And when we come back from ads, I will tell everyone what else was going on yeah. during that week. Hell yeah. All right, and we're back. We're back. We're talking about how this like letter to like a journal in New England suddenly became an entire like national mm-hmm. American thing. Okay, so the way this happened is that this got picked up by the news. Mm-hmm. Now, the, there's a huge New York Times article about this, and that article is published on May 19th, 1968. Now, Shireen, do you know what else was going on? In May of 1968, I've heard a lot of shit went down in the 60s. Uh, Yeah. So this is this is right. This is like smack dab in the middle of May 68 in France. This is this is like one week after the night of the barricades. Um, Three days before this was published, the situationists who are like these this like ultra left student organization who who ha- who at this point are occupying their Sorbonne like they they have fully taken control of their campus they have run the mm-hmm. cops out they have run the administration out um 3 days before this is published the students at the Sorbonne reacting to a factory occupation that they heard about send out this famous communique calling for the occupation of all factories in France and like it fucking happens like the the workers in France take control of like a huge portion of France's factories like the Renault factories are under control of the workers um like yeah, but by 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 this time, like this is happening, right? The the the, yeah. the the police have like the police are fighting them, but they're losing. Um, two two days before this article is published, uh, the Sorbonne sends this to the Chinese consulate. Quote: "Shake in your boots, bureaucrats! The international power of the workers' councils will soon wipe you out. Humanity won't be happy until the last bureaucrat is hung with the guts of the last capitalist. Long live the factory occupations! Long live the great Chinese proletarian revolution of 1927, betrayed by the Stalinist bureaucrats!" It goes on and on. Like wow. Th- this is wow. this is what they're sending to the Maoists, right? Right. Like that. That is that is how far left these people are. Like they they they, they are they are telling. The Maoist shaking your boots, bureaucrats. The international power of workers' councils will soon wipe you out. Like it is wild That's in France. So intense. Yeah, I mean. The fact that this is happening all during all of that, that's not something, I don't know. That's no, no, yeah, to, no to one. To, it's, it's really important. And I, I, yeah. I, I have never read an article that actually puts this together. And I just think it's not just that going on, right? Like, you know, if you look at the situation in France, they are a week and a half out from de Gaulle, who is the president, literally fleeing the country because he's so convinced that they're about to lose the country to communism. Like, well, and I should say when I say communism, by the way, uh, p- part of that message to the uh, uh, to the Maoists is down with the state <laughs> revolutionary Marxism. So like that, that, that these are these people are like these people have, are Marxists who have gone like so far left. They've essentially right. become anarchists. It's it's wild. I mean, you know, and also what's happening like the, the, the Prague Spring is happening happening during the middle of this um mm. this is also like this is a month after the holy week uprising in the u.s which is wow. so a- after mlk was killed there were these like probably yeah. the most intense riots the u.s has ever seen like e- even like even more so than like the, the ones we saw in 2020 the holy week riot like there were like like there, there were there were like like thousands of paratroopers 
were being deployed to like kill Holy rioters. Shit. Yeah, I like it was fucking that. nuts. Yeah, like that was that was probably the closest like some of the closest the US has ever had to just like actually having a revolution, the government losing control of the entire country. And like and while while this article is coming out, like there are still, even in May, the the, the, the Holy Week uprisings in April, but like even in like even in May, there are still people on the streets fighting the cops, like while while this article is being written. And you know, and, and, and if you look at the, there's something about sixty-eight. Someone yeah, may, put may, a curse on that entire year. I mean, it, it's wild. Like six, May sixty, like that 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 year is just the year. Like the entire world went into revolt. I mean, there's like like that. Like they they I, I can't remember if they actually successfully overthrew the government. They like almost overthrew the government of Pakistan. Like a whole bunch of students get shot in Mexico because they were trying to bring yeah. down the government. Like it's everywhere. There was all this stuff going on. Um. And, you know, also the other thing that's happening is we're, we're two years into the Cultural Revolution. And it's kind of interesting because by, by 68, we're kind of into the backlash phase of the Cultural Revolution, where most of what's happening is that the sort of various rebel factions that formed in 1967 and 1966 are just getting like slaughtered by the sort of like state factions. And it's more it's it's uh, it's the Cultural Revolution. It's really complicated. But like by 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 this point, the sort of like revolution part of it has like kind of calmed down and it's more the state in its sort of new form taking control but you know if you're living through this right it looks like the cultural revolution happens in 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 uh in 66 and then you get 67 and then suddenly there was a cultural revolution happening literally everywhere and this is the context of the msg scare like kicks off in right it, it, it starts in like right in the middle of arguably the two most radical months of the entire 20th century wow yeah, and and this is this is the kind of shit that starts like just an absolute mania in the American mind that is powerful enough that like sixty years later it's still around. I mean, it it, it feels like the f- it happening at such like a a manic time. Like people were probably already like kind of feeling that energy, right? So yeah, like, like everyone. It, it was directed everywhere, even at this article. Yeah, and I I genuinely think if if this had happened two months later or two months earlier, I don't think I don't think there would have been like a big scare about it. Like it might have been a thing that stuck around for a bit, but I I think the fact that the end, the New York Times article ha- came out exactly like yeah. in the middle of May '68, and that like the original one comes out like right before the like the original article that gets sent to the thing comes out like a couple of weeks before the Holy Week uprising. I, yeah. I I think it was the fact that it was exactly in this moment where. Everyone on Earth is if you're living through this, like this is the capital R revolution like has yeah. come. And, you know, and, and that that shattered everyone's brains. Like, I, I don't know. Like, I, I wonder, like, do people remember what it was like, like when like when like the height of 2020 was happening? Like, just yeah. how sort of wild like it, it was just psychologically. Yeah, there was, I'm telling you, there was like an energy. Yeah. Like, just, yeah. Like, this collective yeah. strange i mean like obviously it's different than it was in 68 but i really do agree with you like if it happened in january i yeah, don't think I, I it don't would think be it... a thing you know yeah like, yeah and you know i, I so the, the the other thing that's interesting about about this whole sort of like chinese restaurant syndrome is that you could actually track its spread like across other countries by sort of like moments of like peak anti-chinese like sentiment mm-hmm and also anti-Japanese sentiment to a lesser extent, because that 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 sort of replaces the anti-Chinese stuff by the time you get into the 80s and 90s. But well, not replaces, but it's like it's like the the, the dominant mode of like we have mm. a person we need to be afraid of in East Asia. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, but th- there's an interesting. Okay, so if 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 you if you look up um like if you're looking for like medical stuff about 
Chinese restaurant syndrome. One of the things you will find is a case report of the Indian Journal of Critical Medical Care from 2017 claiming that they were treating a patient who got Chinese restaurant syndrome and like couldn't speak because the the thing in the back of his throat had like inflamed and mm-hmm. you know and they had this whole thing about how like this this is like this is like a serious disorder and they they, they specifically cited that letter to the editor from 68. Wow. The power of that yeah. thing. And you know, well, okay, so if you look at what what was going on in, in in India in 2017, and it turns out the thing that's going on is like a giant rise in anti-Chinese sentiment culminating in the uh, 2017 Indian Chinese border incident where do, do you remember when all those guys were like beating each other to death in the mountains with sticks? Yeah, I, I I do vaguely yeah. remember that. I, I've associated many times in my life, and especially post pandemic, my brain is broken. But I do vaguely remember that. I I had kind of forgotten about it, and then and then I, I looked at this article on Souls in 2017. I was like, wait, hold on, hold on. Wasn't that wasn't didn't didn't that happen in 2017? Wow. And it's funny because like yeah, rises entered rise again. Suddenly, uh, uh, Chinese restaurant engine reappears. Wow. It's like woo. It's it's wow. really it's really incredible. It, it's it's. Yeah, it's an incredible set of brain worms. Um, I just, I mean, this is definitely not on topic, I guess, but even just seeing like COVID being blamed on China, like there's yeah. always like a like a, a way for ignorant people just to point the finger at China, which is really fucking shitty. It's, it's so yeah. fucking shitty. It's, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's the sort of like, like what, one of the things you sort of need to have a national project is that in order for you to be a, in order for you to be like a nation, you have to have a you have to have an other. You have to have people who aren't part of the nation. Right. And yeah. the, the U.S. does this pretty effectively. They have they you know they, they can have this sort of rotating cast of people who like aren't yeah. like from the nation, right? Yeah. If you want to stay in, there are people that need to stay out. Yeah. yeah so sometimes it's with Mexico. Sometimes sometimes you get it with sort of like like internal subversion from like black people or like indigenous people. Yeah. But yeah, you know, they have this rotating cast. China's always one of the ones they come back to because it's just big and there's a lot of yeah. them. And, you know, and for that whatever makes reason, it really people easy are easily do. feared by it. Like, I, I think it's because yeah. like it's unknown and un- like, maybe people don't understand it very well that don't look into it themselves and want to fucking be educated. But for whatever reason, people fear it so easily, and it's so bizarre. It's so bizarre. Yeah, it it sucks. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, so we're, I'm going to do an ad break, and then we're going to talk about more of this stuff because it keeps going, and we're back. All right. So obviously, we're dealing with sort of anti-Chinese sentiment and anti-Japanese sentiment, as you know, anti-Japanese sentiment escalating as the '60s turned into like the '80s and '90s, but. There's more going on here. Um, p- part of the reason, you know, back, back like th- this in theory could have been about like soy sauce, right? Like right. Th- there's a lot of things that they could have picked out of that to be the sort of thing everyone yeah. freaks out about. But they, they picked MSG. And part of the reason they picked MSG is that this is the period when people start like figuring out that food additives exist. Mm. And hmm. people start to get really sort of touchy about it. And actually, Ralph Nader... Uh, famous. I remember that guy. Yeah, so he's around in the sixties. Um, yeah, because I mean, he's I, old as shit. Yeah, yeah, and he's you know okay. So I I give I, I give him credit for for like he he has probably saved as many lives as like any other American single American you can name by being the guy who like lobbied to have seatbelts in cars being mandatory. Right. Yeah. A thing that was not before because the U.S. is a like truly deranged country. Yeah. 
he wasn't half bad most of the time. Yeah, you know, he was but, fine. But come on, he's also one of the guys who's like the big pusher for getting the U.S. government to study MSG and a lot of other food additives in like 1960, 1969. Mm. So, you know, and like there's a bunch of other food additives that, the, that they're studying the health effects of. And, and on the one hand, you like... Yeah, it probably is good to study the effects of, like, food additives because, like, I don't know, companies do stuff that sucks all the time. And so it, it is good to study what's in your food. On the other hand... Wait, okay, but, this is going to sound really ignorant, so I apologize. What... Where, again, if, if you already said this, where was it found? Where was MSG found? Is it created in a lab? Like, what's the, what yeah, is the molecule? So, yeah, it, it, by, by this point, it's basically created in a lab. The, the first time someone was able to distill it was they, they did this whole distillation process from seaweed. See, oh, where, yes, seaweed. seaweed. Yeah, Got but, but, but by this point, it's uh, no worries. Yeah, no, like it, but, by, 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 I mean, even by like the early 1920s, I think it, it's it's mostly being produced artificially, which is why right. everyone's okay. sort of But and like it's it, easily it added is, to food. Yeah, yeah, and, and it makes it taste better. But like, yeah. like you know, it, it is something that like you like you can find it. Like in in dashi, like you can find it in like soup broths and stuff, like from yeah. that from seaweed. So it's it's not like I mean I, I didn't know. know that I've I've known about MSG for all, most of my life, and I, I never like for whatever reason. I, growing up, we always associate it with sodium, like salt, salty. Yeah, things, well, I mean it is know? right. Like it, it is yeah. a kind of salt. Yeah, but like I don't know. Like people 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 have this whole thing. Like oh, it's artificial. It's like it, like yeah, we make it artificially, but like it's not. It's not like it's not a thing that you can get out of plants. It's just but that we don't do it that way because it's easier. Yeah. I mean, the source of it is not artificial, but also like you're going to be a stickler on this one thing when you eat like, I don't know, so many other and drink so many other things like there was cocaine and coke like, yeah I don't know. like it's just there's other I, things I, I, every, there. every 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 american like in, in 1969 is like by by their body volume drinking two pounds of lead a year so exactly. like it's so like, it's like, like <laughs> this is the thing you're gonna stick on yeah well and, and, and you know and th- th- this this is this is this is sort of the problem with with what ralph nader is doing with the sort of like pushing the government investigation of it is that like mm-hmm. you know like I, I i don't know how racist 1969 ralph nader was my my guess is that I, like I I I don't think that his big thing was we need to study this because it's the dirty Chinese like salt or mm-hmm. whatever. I, I I think I think he mostly just wanted to he wanted a thing to study food additives. I could yeah. be wrong about that. I don't know. I haven't look, I've looked into this exactly zero percent. But like you know the problem is that what like once this sort of racial panic is going like you can't put you can't put the sort of cork back in the bottle. Right. And you know. Okay, so th- there have been a bunch of studies about this, um, and like, it, 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 but but you know, okay. So the, the the problem with what's happening is that because of the way MSG has been sort of racialized, like the studies don't matter. Like it it, it just does not matter what yeah. anyone actually sort of writes about it until you get an actual cultural change because the, the studies science like is irrelevant. Um, they have the study to justify a bunch of things, and that's the only study they care about. Like, yeah, yeah, it's it's, like, it's 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 yeah. it's like the like vac it's like the like the fake vac- vaccines cause autism shit. Like, right? No, it's they they just believe this. They have one paper that's literally a joke. Exactly, that and that's they, what they, they hold claim, on to. Does it? Yeah, it, that's there like there could be seventeen I, I, others that disprove it, but like no, yeah, there's like one. a million others. Like that. that by yeah. the way, that study. I, I want to point this out. The methodology of that study was they asked parents who thought their kids had developed autism because of the vaccine if they thought their kids had developed autism because of the vaccine, and then the parents said yes, and that's the study. That, that's the study. Yeah. 
That's not a fucking study. That's it's a poll. not. It's a joke. That's like, a poll. It's, it's literally a Twitter poll that like got published and then retracted because wow. it was a Twitter poll, right? Like th- this. This is the scientific basis of all this bullshit. And, and what, this is, I guess what what qualifies as a fucking study then? Like, I, you could you could I don't know you could you could publish fucking anything if you put your well, mind to it. This is this this is this is what I'm telling all of you. Like follow your dreams. Try to get something published. They published this bullshit. So well, like you know I'm gonna I'm gonna do a study. <laughs> yeah, well, the other thing, the other thing specifically, like, there, there's a real problem here with, like, with this is specific thing with medical studies, because, like, you can have a medical study that you get published with a sample size of one, because right. it's you found a thing in a guy, and you're like, oh, I'm gonna publish this, but mm-hmm. you, like, medical studies, like, oh, you can just, like, you could publish any bullshit, and, like, wow. uh, it sucks, but, okay, yeah. so... All right, like, lots of... So, th- th- after this, there are lots of studies by lots of people, and... Like, mostly what they find is they can't find any... Okay, so there's some, like, initial studies that, like, find some alarming stuff in mice. But mm. the problem with these studies is that what they're doing is... Okay, yeah, it turns out if you take a mouse and you just, like, fill a syringe with MSG and inject them with it, it's bad for them. Oh, but, you think like, so? Like, yeah, like, oh, mouse. shit! Yeah, you, you, would, you injected a mouse with pure salt... And like, bad things happen. Like, yes, if if you took a human being and you injected oh. fucking a third of a cup of MSG directly into their veins, it would probably be bad for them. Yeah, right? like, I it's like so. Okay, you know, right. Um, and they found out, the conclusion from that was basically like, okay, if someone ate like a third of a cup of MSG raw, having not eaten for like 48 hours, uh-huh. it would probably do things that are not great for you. But can't you say that about a bunch of other fucking things? Yeah, like, like, I don't, like, I don't know. If, 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 if you didn't eat for 24 hours and ate a third of a cup of salt, like, that's probably, that's not good for you. Like, no. don't do that. <laughs> so, like, you know, okay. Um, very, very specific circumstances have to light up for you to have yeah. any reaction to MSG. So, th- there's a study from 2000 where they, they also, this is also another empty stomach study, by the way, because they've, okay, they, no one has ever been able to replicate, like, any of these results with a person eating food that has MSG in it. They've never been able to do it. They've been able to get some results if you have people eat, like, basically pure MSG and have not eaten any food, like, around it. Yeah, it's like, okay. That's useless because the the molecule at that point, it probably interacts with other things. And that's, you know what I mean? Like, if it's just by itself, it's not the actual... I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not very good at chemistry, so I'm gonna I'll let the chemistry nerds argue I about did, this. I did fail AP Chem, so Oof. same. Great. Yeah. Oof. I I luckily I only had to take right chemistry <laughs> in. So I, I just didn't take AP Chem because I was like I suck. I, I took A Chem like my fr- my freshman year, and I was like, let's it's not hard. do this again. No. <laughs> I can't do this. I just I don't take chemistry physics instead. is the thing. I wanted to be a psychiatrist for a really long time, but failing mm. AP Chemistry and just experiencing chemistry, I was like, I can't do yeah, this. Yeah, <laughs> it it sucks. It's the worst. Yeah. But okay, so the, the reason I was talking about the like vaccines cause autism, uh, right. like autism shit, is that there was another thing with MSG where people were claiming that it was causing asthma, and huh. it no, they had there's they had another like an incredibly elaborate pseudoscience bullshit about like. MSG, like so getting absorbed, like getting absorbed improperly through like like fetal membranes. That's like completely fuck? nonsense. Like what the fuck? it doesn't. Yeah, people, people like what white white people love to say that the diseases they've gotten from fucking the fact that like their their the air in their house is ninety seven percent CO two yeah. by volume. 
and like and and because because they've decided to run an entire country by just putting fucking trucking yards everywhere. Yeah. Like, okay. There has the, the, to be a, a finger to point at, right? Like, it can't be yeah, the yeah, environment no, it, it, it can't or, or be your the bad quality, jeans. Right? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, also, I, I, I should point. I should. I should make this clear, by the way. When 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 I when when, when, when I say when I say that like autism is oh, not sorry. When, when I say that asthma specifically is, is when I talk about the bad air, I'm specifically talking about asthma. I'm not talking about autism with that. That 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 is not what causes autism or whatever. Like yeah. it's autism just. I, I got what you with. mean. I got and, what you mean. Yeah. Good and it's cool. And also, fuck autism speaks. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I I I want to put that on the record. That's what I mean. I'm not I'm not saying that trucks cause autism. They don't. Like yeah. No. But yeah. yeah. So okay. But there's a lot of like incredibly weird racial, very dumb anti scientific panic mm-hmm. about it. It's possible that there exists a group. So originally it was about like like anyone who eats this will have these symptoms, right? And then over time the argument got sort of fizz down to there might be a group of people who in the populate like a small group of people who are like specifically sensitive to it and that's probably plausible like there's some experimental evidence that shows that there could be a group of people for whom they're more sensitive to it than a regular person and that's i don't fair. know sure people, people have are, allergies like whatever yeah exactly like, people are allergic yeah. to peanuts and soy and the bunch yeah of yeah like things. it's not like like, like yeah it, 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 it's, it's not a thing to sort of like yeah, I don't know. Like, yeah. if if you're a person who gets allergy reactions to shit, like, yeah, that's allergies, right? But like, it, it's it's not the sort of like, I don't know. It, it the 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 panic about it is utterly unjustified. There may be of there may be a group of people who it has some effect on because they're allergic to it or whatever. But yeah, imagine imagine demonizing peanuts because there's a group of people that can't eat peanuts. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like, like that is that's so that's. Why? Like, why would you ever do that? Uh, to be fair, I, 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 I am okay with demonizing peanuts, specifically, specifically if it gets people to stop fucking uh, wor- worshipping that bastard Jimmy Carter, who was a neoliberal ghoul, and his reputation has been fucking uh, just like, like his, his, his reputation has been saved entirely by the fact that every single person who came after him was an utterly deranged war criminal, and his war crime was like Wait, what's su- su- suppressing a. Well, he was a peanut farmer. Oh, <laughs> sorry. I yeah, don't. sorry. This is this is this is this is the uh, this is this is the 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 the, the deep Jimmy Carter lore. Yes, yes. <laughs> for the, for I, the I, real I'm Jimmy on, heads out there. Now. Okay, got it. Yeah. Okay, but you know, all right. So going back, I think. So th- this was a kind of thing that, like, you know, people avoiding MSG is just kind of had just kind of been like like a part of daily life. Like it was just like a thing mm-hmm. that existed in the world, but it wasn't like. At a certain point, it, it it became the kind of thing that people would talk about, like in conversation, and like they'll they you, you know you could just get people to do anti MSG rants, but it wasn't really a sort of like mainstream political issue in the way that it had been like in like 1969, where there's well the, the other thing that happened is in the 90s the FDA did a study about it, mm-hmm. the FDA was like it's fine <laughs> like right. don't 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 eat 300 grams of it at one time like but yeah. I, as long as long as you're not sitting there like eating msg raw out of the fucking like they would say tin. the same thing about like high fructose corn syrup you know yeah, what i why? mean like, yeah and like everything. like by by volume high fructose corn syrup has killed way more people than exactly MSG. That's what also, I was thinking. also yeah. now now there's like a whole thing about like msg causing obesity which i eh. I don't know if that's true or not. I think their studies are fucking whack, but you know, it's, it's, yeah. it, it might cause obesity like every other food that the U S has made in the last 20 years. Exactly. <sighs> yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, and what uh, one, one 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 day we will do a a episode about like the politics of anti fatness because it's fucked. But yes, today we're we're doing this episode, and okay, so you know, every once in a while, the way the way this stuff sort of works, every once in a while there would be a sort of like like a, a mainstream like Asian American figure would talk about it. So for example, there's 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 a Korean chef named David Chang who talks mm-hmm. about it. Um and he he did some like he gave speeches about it and the sort of demonization of it. But it, it didn't really get back to mainstream discourse until 2020 when our good friends Ajinomoto, the people who made uh, the stuff in the first place, uh hired a bunch of Asian American like celebrities to do a pro MSG campaign. So they hired Eddie Huang who's like a writer and chef who's like probably most famous for the, being the guy who wrote Fresh Off the Boat. Mm. And so that they have this whole sort of campaign and this like takes off, right? Like he, he, this is, this is one of those things that was like completely forgotten that happened in 2020 that no yeah. one now remembers because this happens like before COVID, like before we had the lockdowns and before, uh, I mean, I'll be honest. I, it's, it escapes my memory. <laughs> oh, I, I, I have no memory of this happening either, but yeah. apparently it did. I don't know. I was, I, I, I think this was still while the, I think this was while the election was still going on. Mm. So yeah. yeah, I paid no wasn't, attention wasn't to this. Wasn't the best time to to do that. Yeah, maybe. 2020, the year everything happened. Yeah, but okay, so you know this campaign like takes off, like he, like Eddie Huang's on on NBC, and they do like the talk mm-hmm. show circuit with Jenny Amai advocating for like so th- th- their whole thing is that they they wanted to remove Chinese restaurant syndrome from the dictionary, mm. and they had this whole like hashtag redefine CRS is like the redefine Chinese restaurant restaurant syndrome. And this is like a whole thing. And, you know, and there's, there's, there's something. OK, but th- this was one of the things that sort of drew me to the story, because if you look at the press for this, right, it's like activist pressure, Marion Webster. And like, that's kind of true. Like it superficially, it is kind of what happened. And like, yeah, I'm glad the dictionary changed the entry to say, like, this is like outdated and kind of bullshit. But like, OK. Think about what actually happened here, right? A company that makes a product hired a bunch of a bunch of sort of Asian American like big celebrity people to do a marketing campaign for them in the name of anti-racism. Which, like, yes, I I I I am glad we are addressing the racism around MSG. However, comma, I, f- I feel like it, it it's a really sort of like it's a, it's a really literal example of the kind of like vapidity and listlessness of like Asian American identity and culture and politics right. like pre-COVID. Yeah. Like this is this is this is this has happening like early January, right? So COVID is still right. sort of like some disease in China. Like we haven't hit full racism yet. And again, like this is not like an activist campaign, you know. I mean, like activists get on board with it, I guess. Mm-hmm. But like activism is doing an ad campaign for a company that makes salt. Right. Yeah. It's not exactly grassroots organizing. Yeah. And and. You know, okay, and, and it works, right? Like this, this is the thing that like the Asian American community like picks up, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, sort of. I don't know. I I don't remember it, but I when I look looking looking back on the articles and the hashtags and stuff, it's like wow, they got lots of tweets. But you know, I I I think I think the reason that this worked is is because of the sort of self conception of like Asian Americanness as this like backstory of like like immigrants stepping off the boat and they start a restaurant and then your kids get an education so they enter the professional class and like there isn't like i don't know like this is in fact this is literally like part of the reason i was doing this also is like this is literally what happened to my family 
like they like they showed up from Taiwan, they worked in a restaurant, then they opened a restaurant, and then like I don't know, like every successive generation. Well, okay, I was gonna say every every successive generation got more like professionally, but mm-hmm. like I have a bunch of doctors and like, but then, but then they also produced me, who's a podcaster. So I'm <laughs> I'm de- defying Asian American stereotypes by yes. being uh, more dipshit than my parents. Um, <laughs> But, you know, like this has become like this single sort of cultural narrative of like what it is to be an Asian American. Right. Like you see this in every single story that Asian American media like has produced in the last like 10 years. It has one plot. Right. There's a family in the U.S. They're trying to fit in. They almost always have some kind of small business. And then something appears that challenges their ability to like assimilate into American society. Mm -hmm. This is and then, you know, they deal with it. And that's the end. Right. This is the plot of Crazy Rich Asians. It's a plot of everything everywhere all at once. The plot of Fresh Off the Boat. It's the plot of the fucking CW Kung Fu show. It is the plot, like, literally everything that, like, we produce has one plot, and it's this. Yeah. And the reason why is it's, you know, the reason why this is the only sort of, like, piece of media that that the, the sort of Asian American culture class has been able to produce. This is the reason why all the fucking activism and ad campaigns are just, like, fucking we got hired by a company and we're going to talk about where racism racism is bad so that this company can sell more product like the reason it's this is because this is an incredibly marketable self-conception of asian americanness like the the conception of it uh, as being restaurant owners right is there because it's 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 a form of culture that can be sold to white people right yeah it's hey look we're different we eat wacky food but you can eat it too and ultimately we're all in this for capitalism and the patriarchal family like just like you are don't worry it's going to be fine and you know that that really depresses me because the this the, this is a moment that demands something else and and I think that's why kind of like I think that's why the sort of mainstream like Asian American reaction to like you know like the, there was there was another I, there there was another Asian woman like who got stabbed to death like two weeks ago and there was like fucking no coverage of it like nobody gave a yeah. shit it's just gotten to the point where like this happens like six people report on it and then everyone just sort of moves on to their life. And and it goes I, and away. Yeah. And, and, and I think the reason why the sort of like stop Asian hate shit has gotten to, a, you know, like it's gotten, it, it, it's, it's gone through the sign cycle where everyone like had the signs up and then they took them down. Right. And so, you know, like, and, and I, th- I think the reason why it was, tr- it turned into this sort of like, like the, the organizing turned into this like incredibly vapid, like put a sign in your store, like, Twitter hashtag stuff like is because of this is is because what like what what it means to be sort of Asian American has been hollowed out and hollowed out and hollowed yeah. out and sold and sold and sold for just decades and decades and decades and now you know like in in a time when it's actually sort of like you know when it when it's really in danger and is called to action it hasn't been able to do much right and well yeah pointing out the film and TV thing is really important because I mean so many marginalized communities have this experience but i think china like asian culture in particular i think it really people if they're ignorant and they just see what's depicted on media they don't see them as three-dimensional beings you know what i mean what they have is like a a very hollow version of a human and so i don't know it's it, it, it kind of upsets me because i feel like media is the first thing people learn things from whether it's film or tv or whatever but yeah. Well, and also, I, I think it's I think it's part of the reason why, like, the the the, the way that those those depictions sort of obscure class, mm-hmm. where you know, because in these things, right, like a lot of these families are poor, but they're still business owners, 
Right. Right. And that that's like like if, if, if you're a poor American, it's well, it's because you're a business owner, you're like a sort of struggling like American entrepreneur. And this obscures the fact that there there is a massive Asian American just underclass people who are like who are delivery drivers or work in warehouses or, you know, I mean, like there, 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 are, who, there are groups of people who like come to the US from China who, you know, like live in like basically completely isolated communities in parts of Chinatown where they're only speaking Chinese and they just right. fucking like they're the people who have to do a bunch of like warehouse shit. And then they leave and that's it. Right. Like, and, and these, these people, this shit never, you like, you never actually get any kind of sort of class analysis because the, the, the way that media thinks about Asian Americans is like, there's, there's one of, they're either one of three things. They're a business owner. They're like a rich professional. So they're like a doctor or something, mm-hmm. or they're like the fucking people on bling where they're just like super rich assholes. Right. And that, that allows, I think like a specific kind of anti-Asian politics to work that like Asian people are seeing this sort of like perpetual like foreign elite. And it's like, no, I don't yeah. know. Like it's it's just not, you know, it, it's it's not true. And it, and it and it means that when you get like Asian American political movements, like the sort of stop anti-Asian hate thing, right? Like you have like the guy who founded DoorDash, right? Mm-hmm. Is like is 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 an Asian, is like a Chinese American guy. Right. He's like, a, he used to, he's a tech billionaire. He used to be like an eBay. And like, you know, you would have these stop Asian hate events where like this fucking guy is, is on there, like is up on the stage talking about anti-Asian hate. And right. it's like, okay, yeah. this guy has like brutally and horribly exploited like literally millions of Asian Americans. But you know, there's, 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 there's no, there's, there's never going to be a reckoning with that yeah. because you he's know, successful the, the, and he's, yeah. he's capitalist. Like he's achieved the capitalist dream or whatever the shit. Yep. You know? And, and, and because, because, because Asian American identity has been flattened in this way, like th- those people are just completely invisible and it, yeah. it sucks and I hate it. And yeah. 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 I, it's just, I don't know. There's nothing good. I can like <laughs> anything I can say to make anything better, but I think it's just, I don't know. Maybe we can do an episode one day about like film and and TV and stuff because I think it really starts yeah, there. I, <laughs> unfortunately, like like it's it's silly, but people that don't know a Chinese person will see a Chinese person on their TV and be like, "X like that, that's the only Chinese person I've ever seen in my life," and I'm going to make assumptions about the whole race now. But one 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 day know. I'm going to do an episode. We're going to do an episode that's entirely me shitting on Jackie Chan. Um, people are going to get really mad at me, but, uh, fuck that guy. That's, he, that's a hot take. That's he started his take. career as a fucking scab. That was literally his first thing was he was a scab and he's, wow. yeah, he's a fucking homophobic piece of shit. Fuck him. Uh, yeah. Done irreparable damage. I'm down America. for this episode. Let's do it. Yeah. All right. That will, that will be a, we are, we are, yeah. we are now just part of the episode, but we are teasing yeah. you with subsequent episodes. Yes. <laughs> but yeah. But yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. It is a little bit upsetting how these really important movements are just like they, they plateau and they become like this vapid thing, like you're saying. Like I think that gives people such an easy out of like quote unquote being an ally or supporting because yeah. they think they're doing something by like holding up a sign or something without really internalizing or spreading the the awareness that is necessary. And uh I don't know. I guess, I guess the the thing I want to end on also is me being pissed off at a bunch of Asian American kids in the '60s. So one of the stories you will hear a lot if you're studying Asian American politics is like is the story that like the term Asian American was invented by these like activists who actually were like doing a bunch of stuff in 1968, 
mm-hmm. um, who were these like student act, like, like these radical student activists. And like, that's true. But the, th- the thing you have to understand about those people is that all of those people were like, like all, all of those people were basically like, were, were third worldists. And part of the reason this whole politics collapses, well, a part of the reason, part of what happened was like part of the demands of these students in 1968, of these sort of like radical student groups, like, you know, they're, they're formed to sort of like support the sort of like black radical student groups mm-hmm. and to like advocate for themselves. But like one of their big demands was they wanted cultural studies departments in, in American universities and they got them, mm-hmm. but you know, okay. So what, 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 what are those cultural studies like departments? They basically just became these giant traps for radicals where instead of like overthrowing the government, you like come do this cushy job in academia right. and like all, all of, all of the sort of like old radicals, like from that era, either like got regular jobs or became like, became academics. Right. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that happened with this politics that was the reason why it was completely unsustainable was that, and this, this is, this has been a sort of a problem with the Asian American identity. Right. Is that, okay, like, what the fuck is an Asian American, right? It's, like, anyone from, like, I don't know, like, it's, it's anyone from, like, the like the edge of the Pacific to, like, I don't know, like, how, how, how far, how far, like, I, I, what's it called? Like, how far, how far west does that go the other direction? Like, who knows? Right. It, it's like, how it's big incoherent. Is a swath of, yeah, of all like, of that? I yeah. mean, this is like billions and billions and billions of people with completely unrelated cultures and languages and stuff like that. And, yeah. and the reason they were able to do this, right, was because they were mirroring their movement off of like the third world, right? Mm-hmm. But the problem that they ran into, and this is the problem with all the third world movements, was that, okay, so the, the third world movement, like, as a thing, was. It was based on a bunch of different nationalist movements, right? Like it was based on that there was going to be this like alliance between like the sort of like the the, the rising socialist powers in Africa and the rising socialist powers in uh, uh, in East Asia, and they were going to sort of like ally with like the rising sort of like minor like the, the the rising sort of like minorities gaining power in the U.S. But okay, if you look at those nationalisms, right, you have. <laughs> Chinese nationalism, Cambodian nationalism, and Vietnamese nationalism all colliding with each other. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if it, it turns out like, what, okay, so what, what, what happens if your movement is based on sort of like the, the unity of a bunch of nationalist movements and they go to war with each other? And, you know, what happened was when, when, when China, when Vietnam invades Cambodia in, 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 in Vietnam invades Cambodia and then China invades Vietnam in 1979, right? That entire politics is just fucked because what 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 are you supposed to do? Like, what's whose whose side are you supposed to take here? Right? right? Like, yeah. you you can do the you know like in, if 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 you're gonna be like a Marxist if, like a Marxist Leninist, like the probably the correct line is support Vietnam, right? Right. But that's a mess because you know how, how many people are Maoists, right? Yeah. And if you but but you know if you're a Maoist and your fucking people just invaded Vietnam, like you know what are you supposed to do, right? And th- th- there was there were earlier tensions with this too, where like. Like China, China was backing like a really shitty faction in Angola, who ended ended up being backed by the U.S. and like South Africa, and that caused a whole bunch of tensions between the sort of Chinese Maoists and a bunch of the sort of black radical groups because they were like, "Why the fuck are you guys backing these people in Angola?" But, but you know, and 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 this this whole thing became a problem because all of these nationalisms are competing nationalisms, right? There, there was never going to be one unified third world. It was always it was always going to end with a bunch of nationalists fucking fighting each other. And when that happens, the Asian, like the Asian American movement, such as it was, just fucking died. And, you know, like as a radical movement, it was just over. And so, you know, I, I think I think the, 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 the lesson that I would take out of this is just that, like, 
do not build do not build your movement based off of someone else's nationalism because those people are going to do things because they're nationalists that are just fucked right they're going to they're going to invade vietnam like Cam, like the your, like the cambodians are going to invade vietnam and then vietnam's going to like you know like like are arguably justifiably because they've been getting attacked and because they're fighting the Khmer Rouge, but like you know, they're they're these people are all going to go to war with each other, right? Like you're or or you know you're you're going to be stuck in the situation where, like, you're 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 being forced to choose sides between like the Derg and the and like the the Marxist government in Somalia because they've they've randomly gone to war with each other. So don't do this. Um, this has been my rant that I wanted I wanted to do about this because yeah. No, I'm glad you did. I'm glad that I was here for it, too, because I don't know. It's good to know this this stuff. And I get to learn by listening to you tell me. <laughs> um, and yeah, I. I appreciate all the research that you did. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, so I guess the, this has been a canapa year. Yeah. Yeah. It's the episode. You can find us uh, happen here pod um, on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at it me chr3 um yeah yeah i'm at shiro hero 666 on twitter and then on instagram just take out the 666s but maybe i should add them because who cares (laughs) (laughs) anyway thanks bye Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year. And what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and the last star on the business. I understand now. It's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
This is It Could Happen Here. My name is Jake Hanrahan. I'm a journalist and documentary filmmaker. Today you're going to hear me reporting from an undisclosed location in Europe where I met with anti-Putin Russian partisans. So right now I'm heading into the forest somewhere on the edge of Europe. There's snow absolutely everywhere. It's pitch black and it's very, very cold I'm heading into the forest to meet with anti-government Russian partisans. They've been launching attacks inside Russia against Kremlin infrastructure. They've been blowing up railway tracks and attacking military recruitment centers because they want to disrupt the continued Russian invasion of Ukraine. These partisan attacks have been taking place all across Russia. But obviously over there, there's a complete media blackout on this situation. So this group have come over um, and agreed to meet with me to tell me what's actually happening and to let people know that it's not everybody there that supports this and some people are even taking up arms uh taking massive risks to try and stop what putin is up to when russia invaded ukraine on february 24th 2022 the ukrainian people bravely mobilized to fight back against putin's attack on their country Russia's so-called three-day special operation has turned into a gruelling year-long battle where the Ukrainian resistance has been highly effective. Despite this chaos, it seems many people in Russia have come out in favour of this brutal war, even now with over 40,000 people killed and over 14 million displaced, there's still large-scale support for Putin's attacks on Ukraine. This much is fact. The idea that every Russian is in favour of the war is not. Russia is a huge place with a population of over 140 million. Many people there do not support Putin or his war. Some have even taken the risk to fight back. As I mentioned, there's a quiet but highly effective network of anti-Putin partisans that are fighting from within. They're doing this by blowing up military railways, sabotaging Kremlin cell towers and burning down war recruitment centers. All this in an effort to help Ukrainians from afar. If caught by the Russian security forces, they face torture and life in prison. Despite the risks in the last 12 months, there have been more than 80 confirmed attacks against the government inside Russia. The attacks have taken place all across the country as well, from Moscow in the west to Vladivostok in the far east. There are dozens of different partisan cells and lone wolves. As is with real life, the partisans have varying different political ideologies from far left to far right. For the moment though, they all share information with each other, recognizing their common enemy in Putin. One of the most organized groups is made up of militant anarchists. They're known as the Anarcho-Communist Combat Organization, more commonly referred to by their Russian abbreviation, BOAK. It's two fighters from BOAK who I'd arranged to meet in a Russia bordering forest of Eastern Europe. We'd spoken weeks before via encrypted email. They told me which country to fly to and then sent me coordinates of where to meet them within a specific window of time. I drove as far as I could, abandoned the car, and took off into the forest. Eventually, a red torchlight emerged through the trees, cutting the silhouette of two figures. As the two approached, it was clear it was the Boak fighters. They were both dressed head-to-toe in black, and were both wearing balaclavas. We confirmed things, shook hands, and set off to find a spot for the interview. 
that led me through an underground tunnel to an area they felt comfortable with. Uh, just, just a moment. Uh, it sounds like... To protect the identity of the Russian partisans, we've scrambled their voice. That voice you just heard, that's Ulya, she's a female, and the other fighter, the voice you'll hear, that's Jura, he's a male. Can you explain the actions? Like, what are the main things you've been doing to disrupt Putin's invasion? We disassembled railways, which leads to the artillery uh, warehouse in the Moscow region. It delayed uh, supplies to the front, so it uh, gave to the Ukrainian people more time to prepare for the uh, counterattacking Russia. Derailing trains in Russia is something the partisans specialize in. They've managed to knock several Kremlin cargo trains off their tracks trains that were destined to deliver weapons to Russian soldiers as they continued to invade Ukraine. We'll probably never know how helpful this was for Ukrainians, but every second counts when battling for frontline positions in war. For example, if Russian soldiers were left waiting for a resupply, which was delayed because of partisan attacks, they might then be overrun by Ukrainians. This would definitely be an effective blow for the partisans. I asked the Boak fighters why they felt the need to form such an organization. We see that we need to create a partisan organization because in Russia uh, the state oppression is uh, very hard. So you can't uh, use some uh, I don't know, legal methods uh, to do some step-by-step uh, changes. Even if you do some uh, so-called legal actions, anyway you'll go to the jail. We are attacking the state to make it uh, weaker. To show people that we can do it. We as people, people of Russia, people of all of the world, we have this power in our hands. And it we, is possible. Yeah, them, the state, they are small and we are, uh, there's a lot of us. And the second um, direction which we are developed since then is a coordination of uh, such kind of attack, partisan attacks all over the Russia. Recently we published, uh, I think, maybe even more than 10 attacks from the many different regions. Uh, we help small partisan cells to find out how, how to make attacks, help them with uh, supplies to help such uh, small partisan groups. It's increasing. It's increasing, yeah. And they're making more and more serious attacks. For example, not a long time ago, they bombed some kind of military railroad near the Ukrainian border. So it, it, our power is not uh, in that one small group can do, but uh, that's uh, we have a lot of small groups and all together we can change things. So you guys have been around before the Ukraine war started or at least since the invasion started this year um, but that's when you've got a lot more known I think online we're seeing that you guys are actually doing attacks inside Russia and in Belarus very dangerous thing to do um, what is it that you know spurred you guys on why are you doing this why are you taking such a risk to basically attack Putin in his own country? Uh, because it's not his country it's our country we, d- we can't do nothing uh, we can't do legal things and uh, this uh, partisan attacks can make military machine of Russian state we uh, cut the supply lines we, uh, we uh, attack the military yeah, recruitment uh, centers so uh, the, the army becomes weaker and as it was very often in Russia and many other states' uh, history, when the state lose war, uh, there is a, uh, the window of possibilities opens for the people of this uh, country. Whilst Boak are pragmatic, focused currently on the pressing issue of Putin's war on Ukraine, they're also looking to carve out a space for themselves in what they believe will be a wild post-Putin Russia. When Putin dies, there will be a vacuum where many other groups feel the same. Boak, in their minds, are setting down foundations already. 
For now, though, they concentrate on assisting the Ukrainians. And in terms of like solidarity with Ukraine, are you doing this to help the Ukrainians as well, or just for yourselves? Like, are you in contact with Ukrainians, or is this just like a movement you guys are doing yourselves? We, of course, we had contacts. Uh, we can't, uh, of course, uh, say what exactly contacts. Yes, but yes, we have contacts with uh, uh, different uh, and not only his organization in uh, all ex-USSR. And other countries as well. Also, yeah. As well, we try to provide information for those other groups which uh, don't yet know how to do things and don't yet have funds enough uh, for supplies because even gasoline costs money and they don't have money. And uh, as well, near the start of war, uh, our group organized a few attacks like on a mobile cell towers near Ukraine border. As we've seen from the Telegram channels, the kind of underground, there's definitely a lot of attacks, as you've said, as you've been doing. Um, how big is your organization? Because it's hard to tell. How how prevalent are these attacks inside Russia? So there is about two or three uh, uh, thousands affinity groups and everyone has a different uh, number of members. And uh, what about geography? Uh, as you know, partisans ex uh, from the Kaliningrad, west of Russia, to the uh, Vladivostok, which is uh, far east of Russia. All Almost, over Russia, yeah. yeah. Specifically being anarchists, but being partisans is extremely, extremely dangerous inside Russia. You're taking a massive risk doing this kind of stuff. Um, some people are going to see this and go like, why? Why would you take that risk? If we won't take those risks now, we won't have future at all. Are you not worried? You're not scared of getting caught? Of <laughs> uh, we are. We're uh, not stupid enough to yeah. not be. But it's much more scary to live knowing that you had chance to change something and you didn't. Uh, our people killing people of Ukraine and uh, making the world worse and worse with every day, with dangers of nuclear war and so on. Because if we do it now, maybe we will not have the future at all. Not only in Russia, but all over the world. People on the internet, they'll see what you guys are doing. And they say, oh, you guys are CIA operatives <laughs> and stuff like this. Um, particularly like Westerners that actually support Putin. Now, you know what it's like living there under Putin. Um, you know, what, how would you address that? What would you say to those kind of accusations? <laughs> I think uh, if we would be CIA, we'd, uh, we would uh, act... Uh, more effectively, but uh, we act with uh, those forces, with those resources which we have. We're trying to increase them, but uh, when I said that, it's time, it's a process uh, from uh, zero partisan attacks to the uh, full partisan war. <laughs> so if we were a CIA, we, had a lot, we'll ha we would have a lot more resources. And yeah, we, like, we have homemade... Uh bombs or <laughs> anything we can get our hands on so or, 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 or even um, uh, speaking about resources which we used when we uh, assembled railways we used uh, simple instruments which we could be bought in hardware store, store. we are showing people that uh, they can just go to the store and buy those tools and do that themselves it's not just you know, us uh, doing some stuff with some uh, specific uh, materials you can only get in the dark net. <laughs> now, let's be honest, it's likely the CIA are up to something in Russia, considering their past history. But personally, I believe Boak, when they say they're nothing to do with that, 
I think it would be pretty unlikely that the CIA would help an anarcho-communist group when there are ultra-nationalist groups doing similar things. How do you get the information? Like, how do you know which railway to blow up? We use the Wikimapia, service which provides... Um, Description for each object. ...on the map, and every ca- everyone can contribute to it. So you just open it, and you find, uh, OK, military objects is here, it's doing something like that, that is its photos, and people who did it, they, they didn't do it for us, they just did it because... You want to share this information. information. And you just can take it and use it. So they use Wikimapia to help plot their attacks. This I found quite funny. It's like the modern version of guerrillas gathering intel from locals about the enemy, only the locals in this case don't even know they're doing it. Scouting is also a big part of their sabotage preparations. But, but of course, uh, we need to... Um, a lot of scouting. Yeah. Scouting? Yeah. Like you, you check out the place. Of course. Yeah, yeah of course. Many we've, times we've, before the attack. I know that anarchists specifically in Russia have been tortured quite a lot if they're captured for anything. Um, what do you think would happen to you guys if you got caught? For sure, we're going to be tortured as well. If we will be, if, uh, if we will live enough, because uh, we uh, not are not planning going, not to, planning to uh, get caught uh, and defended. Yeah. We don't give any information on our comrades, and when you are tortured, it's hard to say when you would or would not you break. You never know how yeah. you react and to torture. So it's, it's better to prevent this by dying fighting. Does that mean you have firearms? <laughs> if you want to do a revolution, you can do it without firearms. Like why? Why are you doing this? Why are you giving us the interview? Why do you want this this information to get out there? We think that it's important that people see us not as some internet warriors. We want people to uh, hear our voices and uh, to hear what we can uh, we have to say. We don't want uh, people to think that we are some shady organization, uh, but we want them to see that we are real people just like them. Yeah. And just like uh, us, they can do things that we do. A lot of it is online, but there's, there's definitely a perception that all Russians agree with the invasion, the destruction of Ukraine, what Putin wants to do. Obviously, people like you very clearly, you know, a small but effective resistance against Putin's policies. What, what do you think about that? How would you respond to that? Is, is it in the country? Are more people against it than it would seem or what? There are a lot more people against it than uh, it seems uh, because uh, propaganda shows only people who agree with Putin and many, many people don't agree uh, and many people just just silent because they're afraid to lose their jobs. If you uh, will beat dog every day, then uh, some uh, day it, it will think that you, I live like that, it's uh, normal. You know. So as we see, uh, a lot of people in Russia are also victims of the Putin's regime. At the moment they just uh, don't think that if they speak up, they'll change anything. I think our main message is that people shouldn't just sit and wait that someone else is going to do anything for them. They should take their lives in their own hands. As we often uh, repeat, if not we, then who? If not now, then when? Thank you very much. Thank good you. luck with everything. Yeah. It's very good to Thank you. Thank you so much. With that, the two partisans from Boak vanished into the forest. As Russia's war on Ukraine approaches its 12th month, Russian partisans like the ones I spoke to are continuing to disrupt Putin's war effort from within. Organisations like BOAC are fighting an uphill battle, but still their attacks have definitely been effective. 
As we said, several military trains have been derailed and word of the partisan underground is spreading. Whilst there's next to no Russian state media coverage on this, the Russian government is clearly aware of it. Security around Russian train tracks has been tightened and a Russian court has fined the Telegram app for allowing partisan networks to share information there. Not to mention the uptick in unexplained fires breaking out across the country. Even though Putin's government acts like they can't see them, they know the partisans are there. If you want to watch the extended documentary version of this reporting, go to youtube.com slash popular front and look for the documentary Russia's Anti-Putin Underground. Music in this episode of It Could Happen Here was by Sam Black. See his music at samblackpf.com. Reporting, production, editing was by me. You can follow me at Jake underscore Hanrahan. H-A-N-R-A-H-A-N. Please do check out my platform, Independent Grassroots Conflict Reporting, www.popularfront.co. Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to It Could Happen Here, a podcast that is today about it happening here, or, or more particularly in Atlanta. So, so it's here if you happen to live in Atlanta, Georgia, 
otherwise it is it is still happening there um and i don't actually know much about this because like the rest of you i have been watching from the sidelines since a forest defender was killed by the georgia state police uh but someone who has been in atlanta for most of the last week is garrison davis garrison hello hi hi how you doing it's been a long week yeah it sounds like it you uh had just gotten back from CES when all this happened and uh, booked booked the next flight and flew out and were on the ground during uh, some of the immediate protests that followed news about the death. Do you, do you want to just kind of take it from here? Yeah, so we're going to be putting together kind of a, a more in-depth thing similar to my similar to my uh, on the ground at, Def- at Defend the Atlanta Forest episodes from last May. That is, that's that's going to come out, but, you know, it'll take a little bit because I'm doing a lot of interviews, doing a lot of on-the-ground stuff here. Yeah. Um, but this is important enough that I feel like it's it's worth, that it was, it was worth mentioning something a bit sooner, which is why we're recording here uh, today, just to kind of give a 101 on what's been going on ever since Wednesday. So, Wednesday, January 18th, there was a raid on the Walani Forest, or the South River Forest in Atlanta, where people have been currently staying in encampments for the past like year and a half in opposition of this upcoming uh, proposed police training facility to be built on this same land. So Wednesday morning, there was this raid. Um, there's a few things different about this raid. One, it seemed uh, to be in some ways kind of led by the Georgia State Patrol. Um, this is a, you know, a, a, state, a state-run police that has not been in this force before. Um, other raids have been coordinated between a DeKalb County police and Atlanta police. So the SWAT team was was unfamiliar with the forest. They had not been in there before. There was there was other police on on site. This was an interagency thing. There was it, it does seem like there was Atlanta police here as well. But this started at around 8 a.m. And then at around 9 a.m., we got word that uh, a forest defender was shot and killed by, it seems like, an, an estate patrol officer that they are not releasing the name of, nor are they releasing the name of one other officer who was injured, um, and Georgia State Patrol claims that they were shot during this raid as well. Police By say the decedent. That, yeah. Yes, p- p- police, police claim that they were shot by the person that the Georgia State Patrol killed. There's very little information about this. Um, no body cameras. Um, no, they have said that there's no no body cam, which does seem consistent because Georgia State mm-hmm. Patrol are not uh, are not required to wear body cam. So that obviously hit a lot of people pretty hard because this is, um, to our knowledge, the first like you know environmentalist protester to be killed by police. It's the first yeah. fatality that we've had in the in this in this uh, movement here in in Atlanta. And for the record, it is still deeply unclear what happened. It's certainly not impossible that this person fired first on the police officer, but it's it's also incredibly important to note that there is no evidence of this that's been presented. The only evidence that the police have presented is a photo of a of a pistol on the ground, um, and then they've made the very weaselly worded claim that um ballistics testing has shown that the bullet that struck the officer was consistent with the gun that they're saying with, the the individual they killed had. And now, all that means is that it was nine millimeter. 
that allegedly. it was the same caliber, right? You, a, gun, a caliber for which there are tens of millions of guns in this country. Um, most ballistic science is in terms of like identifying bullets to guns is actually nonsense. There have been massive lawsuits about this. The FBI um, has has this is a bigger topic than than we can get into today, but it's very shady. And all that they actually said is the cop was shot with a nine millimeter and Hey, look, we found a nine millimeter. Not interestingly enough. We have confirmed that this gun was fired. Um, Correct. So very, anyway, uh, so no one knows what's happened. It's, it's, it's shady. I mean, so I've, I, I got, I got here like less than 24 hours later. A lot of people on the ground have been kind of sharing their memories of the person that was killed. So the person was named, uh, their their forest name was Tortuguita, which means l- mm-hmm. little turtle. Their name that has been released is uh, Manuel. Um, I'm just going to, I'm going to call them Tortuguita or Tort. Um, sure. There's been, well, people have, you know, spent a lot of the past few days talking about Tort, remembering Tort, um, the types of things that, that they, they advocated for, the types of things that they would talk about. So we'll, we'll get into some of the more kind of specifics of that, of that, of that later. Um, but yeah, a number of other journalists have talked about their conversations with, uh, with Tort, including um, the fact that they evinced a, a pretty principled um, and, and extensive commitment to nonviolence. Um, at least in interviews, this is the yeah. something they had been quoted on by an, other journalists a number of times. And this is something I've heard a lot of people bring up: is that is that Tort was was a, a believer in in nonviolence and would and would talk about and advocate that. The other the other kind of angle to this, and I'm not taking a position one way or, or another here, but this is something that I think is important to mention: is that I also don't want to remove the agency of a person. If they did decide no. to do, if, if I if I did if they did decide to do this, because the the other thing I've heard a lot about Tort is that they always made thoughtful decisions, meaning that they they put thought into everything they did. Um, they were they they acted strategically. They did not they did not put people in unnecessary danger. They would not do something if they thought it would endanger other people. They always acted with thought, and that 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 could include. If you feel like your life is under immediate threat, um, what what actually happened Wednesday morning, we will probably never know. We will never know the exact series of of events. Yeah, um, and it's and in some ways, like that's we can we should re- respect tort either way, um, because they made a decision that they thought that was right in the moment, or they were just flat out murdered by police. Um, so that's, that's kind of the gist of, of what happened Wednesday morning throughout the rest of the day, their police continued their raid on the forest. The, the last, the last tree sitter was eventually taken down like 20 hours later after the raids that someone was stuck up in a tree for over 20 hours, no food or water, um, police agitating them the entire time. And many, uh, all, all of, all, uh, other people arrested, I think a total around seven, got charged with uh, domestic terrorism among other charges. So that's pretty significant. Um, that is people that, that, and we will circle back to this, to this point a little bit later. So that is, that is what happened on Wednesday. Uh, you know, the, the first few hours after the shooting, people were unsure of, of who actually got killed. It was, it was hard, it was hard to say. Um, other forest defenders who were in the area 
did report from that what they heard there was a a pretty a pretty quick single firing of of guns multiple guns going off in a pretty quick succession there was no like one shot and then seconds later a bunch of other shots it was all kind of one event this is reports from people on the ground this is what this is what what they've said um a lot of a lot of people speculate that this could have been friendly fire if if this if this if this if this other p- patrol officer was was um you know got shot they 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 went to the hospital so they, yeah, they, it does. It does appear that a police officer had got a bullet inside of them. Yes. Um. But obviously, there's a number of ways in which that could have occurred, and yeah. and I I don't find it. I certainly I don't think it's conspiratorial at all. To, conspiratorial at all to say they have not presented evidence. It is certainly possible that a bunch of cops wandering through the forest, somebody would have a negligent discharge. You know, yep. somebody would just pant. You know, there's enough. So we just, and again, as you've stated, we just. We probably will never know precisely what happened. Yeah, um, and that's that. That's the feeling on the ground. A lot of people coming to terms with the fact that we will never know. A lot of people, you know, thinking that it, you know, very likely chance it was friendly fire. Other people, you know, trying to trying to emphasize the fact that you know we will never know. It's we cannot say one way or another. But it's also important not to minimize someone's autonomy, um, especially since they're no longer around to advocate for themselves or their actions. Um, yeah. Let's go. Let's have a let's have a an ad break, and then we'll kind of continue on to what happened yeah. in the in the days after. We're back, Garrison. Please continue to take it away. So the the late the day of the shooting, there was a vigil. Before we found out who it was, there was a vigil set up at Little Five Points in Atlanta, and then the next two days, there was uh there was a vigil space created at Entrenchment Creek Park or Wolani People's Park. Uh, this is an area of the forest that's to that's on like the eastern side, and this is the section that is currently um, being sought as a a place to expand Black Hall Movie Studios. So this is this is separate from the actual Cop City element of this, but it's still part of the defend the Atlanta forest side of this because th- this is all the same forest. They're just kind of split. Um, down the middle by this uh, by this power line cut. So this section of the park is on a section of land that's contestedly owned by Ryan Millsap, the guy who runs Black Hole Studios. I first arrived at uh, at uh, Wolani People's Park on Friday for the for like the more public facing vigil, and I just just kind of I I want to talk a bit about the park because this is such a I think it's such a solid encapsulation of what's changed since last time I've been in Atlanta. So last time I was in Atlanta, there was um, the Muscogee Creek people were traveling from, I believe, Oklahoma to Atlanta. Well, what what is now Atlanta? What what used to be Muscogee land? Um, and they were they were like giving talks and presentations about the forest inside the section of forest that that the defend the Atlanta forest stuff is about. And I, I went to one of those events at Entrenchment Creek Park. It was, you know, green, trees all around. There was a nice gazebo. There was a there was a piano inside the gazebo. People handing out food. A little like kitchen was set up. Pretty pretty picturesque. It was it was pretty it was pretty great. So then when I pulled up to this same spot a few days ago, it was like apocalyptic. The gazebo has been completely torn down and is laying in shambles in the front of the parking lot, like for everyone to see the, the destroyed remains. All of the 
all of like the uh the 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 concrete sidewalks and stuff have all been torn up and it's just scattered everywhere it's now it's just it's just a massive mud pit it's it's such a different place um and you know when you when you get there for a vigil the mood's not cheery obviously um there was people you know sharing stories of tort singing songs and you know building this like a almost like a vigil shrine um uh so that was like the first the first big thing friday night um so a, a lot of people talked about their memories of tort and you know the different things they they contributed to not just to defend the Atlanta Forest stuff but stuff across the entire south they did mutual aid work um and stuff to secure housing for people in Florida uh they helped defend uh, drag shows in uh in uh, Tennessee they they did they did stuff all all across the south and you know they had they had allies and accomplices from across the South, you know, talking about how great Tort was to work with and the types of solidarity that Tort would show to to many, many different people. So that was Friday. And everyone was kind of I you could kind of feel the almost calm before the storm in some ways. People didn't people didn't really know what was gonna happen in the coming days, but you know, there was there was a sense of like eerie quietness. And then Saturday happens. Saturday, there is this protest planned meeting in Underground Atlanta, which is a spot in downtown Atlanta, kind of on the south side. I got there for this protest. There uh, initially there was people from this like socialist organization called PSL. They they tried to lead the march one way. Um, the crowd rejected their authority and was like, no, we're not going to go to the federal district. We're not going to go to the CNN center, uh, which are places notorious for getting kettled at. Um, and they, and, and people autonomously redirected the crowd um, north towards the, and, and north is also just so happens to be the direction of the Atlanta police foundation headquarters. the, pseudo union lobbying group that is that is behind the big push for for cop city um but before this march started there was similarly you know people giving speeches about tort people not, not speeches like people just sharing memories of tort so people so that tort can like live on um in some way so people can you know know about them now that they're no longer around you know people from a local medic collective talking about you know, Tort's, tort, tort, tort's involvement in that and how much Tort cared about, you know, helping other people. So this, this, this march starts up. Um, it was funny. There was a, f a few blocks away from this march location. There just so happened to be like a single police car in the street, but like parked on the wrong side of the road. And this police car sees this march coming. And it's like kind of freaking out. It doesn't know what to do. It drives in reverse for like, like two blocks trying to find a spot to turn around <laughs> as the march is like increasingly getting closer. Like you could just, God. you could just, you could just feel, you could feel the the anxiety of the cop yeah. inside this car. He, they, they, they do not want to get surrounded by, by a crowd. Um, eventually, mm. they're able to back up enough to turn around, and they, they. Get out! They are they are zooming away. They do not want to be anywhere near this. And short shortly after, uh, people arrive at the uh, Atlanta Police Foundation headquarters. Windows spontaneously shatter. Mm -hmm. um, 
as as is expected. Uh, a few bank windows also get um, get get broken. Uh, w- Wells Fargo being one of them. R.I.P. Yes, R.I.P. Bank windows. Uh, w- mm. Wells Fargo being another one. Wells Fargo is a major contributor to the Atlanta Police Foundation. So this happens two cop cars that are just you know blocks away um, that are sitting completely empty get their get their uh, windows smashed you know there's peop- there's there's fireworks going off around the crowd um, there's there's this one clip that I that I saw from some some uh, some group that was live streaming um, that there was there was a few a few officers like stationed beside the Atlanta police foundation. And as soon as they, as soon as they heard fireworks, they, again, similarly just like ran away as fast as they could. They were not equipped to, to deal <laughs> with, um, to deal with a, <laughs> fireworks were the, were the main thing they seemed to be scared of. So two, 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 two cop cars get their windows smashed. Um, fireworks going around March continues, goes for about a few more blocks. And, uh, then, uh, uh, uh corkers notice police, Police are starting to come. Uh, police are, 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 are approaching the approaching the crowd head on. Police start rushing towards the crowd. Um, one, they they tackle tackle a few people holding a banner. Um, I think they 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 people people scatter. Most of the crowd gets away. Most of the, the the crowd splits up in, into into two groups. The largest chunk is able to move away from police presence. There's, you know, people chanting, be water, you know, all of, all the stuff. Uh, so most, most people do successfully get away. The smaller, smaller section of people split off in, in another direction. Cops follow. They are able to tackle and arrest a few, a few more people in this, in this group. In the end, it looks like there was six people arrested. Um, most, most people got away. After all these arrests are happening, people start noticing something. <laughs> That in the background, a few a few blocks previous to where people were marching, uh, it looks there looks to be a glowing police car. Uh, so we 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 look back, and sure enough, an an Atlanta police car is up in flames, um, complete completely completely glowing, huge huge flames. So so as that happens, more and more cops show up. This is where like the cops now are like taking over downtown. Um, you know, cops with with uh, AR-15 or AR style rifles are are going around, starting starting to do patrols. So this is like the the night the night is over at this point. Uh, now it's time for like people to scatter and leave, which is what people did. the The aftermath of this is super fascinating, and unfortunate if not unexpected. Uh, you know, there's been very little statements about the police killing of an of of Tortiquita, of you know an environmental activist, um, forest defender. But very 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 little statements addressing this this matter at all. A huge flood of statements, however, ex- seeming to be extremely concerned that like a few windows were broken and that a cop car got torched. This this is terrorism. And you know, this this is le- this is less than a week after Martin Luther King Day. Um, this is, you know, this is the, the 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 big quote was that the the police chief a few hours later declared that uh, breaking windows and starting fires is terrorism, which is a wild thing for a, a a police chief to say as the mayor stands behind 
nodding in agreement. It's one of the most fascist things that we've that has that has occurred in the United like, States. You, you cannot understate uh, like in the my severity lifetime. of yeah, like this the severity yeah. of this of this change in the types of framing by the state. Yeah, to describe civil disobedience, to describe property destruction, to describe vandalism as a form of 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 domestic terrorism is is uh, appalling um <sighs> i mean if if this if this holds up then in states where this is done there is effectively no longer any right to protest yeah and i mean and, like, and we'll, we'll get into some some of the details of this in in a bit even in this in this episode um and i think the uh, the other side of this is that this is something that i've heard people talk about here on the ground is that if if breaking windows is terrorism, right? If 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 the destruction of inanimate objects is terrorism, what what exactly is destroying an entire forest? Like this is this is like the, the juxtaposition that people are are dealing with on the ground right now. So the end the, the result of this is that we got six people who not six people who were to be clear, arrested completely at random. This, this was very clear. Police were tackling anyone they could get their hands on. They were not doing targeted arrests. They were not going after specific individuals who they suspected of, of like actually doing crimes. Um, they, were, they were tackling r- random people, as is kind of usual for these sorts of things. Yeah. But they have gotten a series of ridiculous charges. Um, riot, arson, interfering, inter- interfering with government property, um, and also domestic terrorism and domestic. So this is domestic terrorism, not even for people that are like in the forest, just people protesting out on the street. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So out getting, on the street when windows were broken, when windows were broken, there's no evidence of this. Uh, the bail hearings were, uh, today as of being recorded. This is, this is Monday, but bail hearings were today. The judge, the judge for the hearings specifically said that these hearings are not to litigate the facts of the issue. What actually happened doesn't matter. There's, there's obviously no evidence to support that any of the people arrested did any crimes. There is, there's no evidence that, that shows that the specific people arrested did anything beyond marching in, in the street. And that does not matter. That, that, that simply does, does not matter. The, the brutality is the point in this case. Um, yeah. two, two people have had their bail set at $355,000 each. So that's over $700,000 for just two people's bail. The other four people arrested were deemed to be from out of state by the judge and then thus a flight risk, including people that are just like less than 90 minutes away in Tennessee. And again, this this is like where people are born. There's this, there's this, there's this sense that like, people no longer have freedom to choose where they live that people like yep. no longer have any freedom of movement that they no longer have the autonomy to go to di- to different places you know this is ob- this is like in line with the outside agitator angle that's been being pushed by governments and media ever since especially since t- 2020 this is in line with that sort of stuff but because these people were deemed non-local or a flight risk these people are not getting any bond at all these people are going to be held in jail indefinitely it's indefinitely detention yeah. it could this this could literally be years the, the legal system mm-hmm. is so slow and uh, like being held in prison or in, in jail for for years with no evidence presented that you did literally anything wrong um 
I've talked with a lot of people, people from Solidarity Fund, which will we'll, I guess I'll mention here at the end, and and you know just just people around like what they're you know people are getting arrested with no evidence and getting you know indefinite time in prison, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars to be released, like the 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 obvious abuse of power by the state. Um, the the sheer audacity and uh you know the extreme danger that if these if these are able to 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 stick and hold is incredibly frightening for any any kind of future yeah. um it's any, meant any, to be any future civil rights movement at all like in this you, again, you might say that it's the 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 strategic use of terror in order to achieve a political end. one one might say that <laughs> and I mean it's we're in Atlanta. The streets they're marching on. There's banners of Martin Luther King hanging above us. Like it's it's incredibly frustrating. The Solidarity Fund, which we interviewed on the show, literally days before the well, with the, the episode released days before the killing of Tortuguita. Um, but the Atlanta Solidarity Fund is providing both legal support and um, and 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 bail for people arrested for political actions. The previous amount needed to bail out people was over $100,000, which is a lot of money. And now, just just for two people, it's $700,000 more. So the Atlanta Solidarity Fund desperately needs funds to continue supporting people and to continue resisting state repression. Um, we'll talk about this more once I have my deep dive episodes out on this topic. But it's it's crucial that that if 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 anyone cares about people's right to protest to people's people's you know ability to resist state violence um then it's it's absolutely crucial that that people support the solidarity fund right now uh just just today i went to another another kind of vigil um at emory college here in atlanta more more people were sharing stories of tort um, one person was reading out a letter that they sent to sent to their um, comrades in Italy who are setting up a vigil as well. There's been a good amount of international support. I've I've seen vigils from Germany, um, from Italy. There's been there's been events, demos, rallies, um, direct actions, and vigils all across the United States um, about to defend the Atlanta forest and about the the killing of Tor- Tortuguita. <sighs> People, people here absolutely do appreciate the solidarity. And the other thing people are saying is that, I mean, all of these tactics are meant to scare people away from the idea of protesting. And yeah. people are still needed on the ground here. This fight is not, this fight is not over. Um, this, is, this, is not, this is not the end. You know, tactics may have to change. Tactics may have to shift. People may have to approach things from, from um, you know, different angles. But it's not over, and there's there's people have said that there's still a need for you know for support roles for people on the ground, for people to be in Atlanta because it's not done. I mean, I I think there's a lot of sentiment on the left that what's happening in the Atlanta forest defense is probably the most important radical action going on in the country right now, and I think there's a few reasons for that, um, not just the fact that the forest that is going to be torn down for cop city is a crucial part of the city of Atlanta's tree cover. And that all of this ties into both the impossibility of actually combating climate change 
under the present system and the complicity uh, of the police in in making it impossible to combat that um, or even to mitigate it in many cases. But but I think what you've gotten to is probably the most direct, the most directly frightening thing about what's going on in Atlanta and the thing that's most relevant to the future of any kind of resistance in this country, which is um, the the gloves are are coming off, right? The the this is this is not going to be the last time that state security forces use the fact that terrorism has a a special place in American law and that crimes that are deemed to be terrorism um, open up the ability of the government to act in ways that they normally are not supposed to be able to act. Um, like that is going to be, it's not going to be just forest defenders that gets used on. It's going to be anyone who ever carries out any kind of act of protest that has a chance of upsetting the balance of power um, in this country. Like that's that's where this is headed. And um, yeah, it's a bummer. Do you want to talk a little bit about the the role of the media in this? Because that is uh, something that, is I'm I'm certain going to be of uh we, we just had a thing today where some weirdo lefties on uh at the True and On subreddit decided and someone on Twitter decided to accuse me of getting a bunch of people in Atlanta arrested for terrorism because I interviewed them on camera. I've I've never interviewed anyone in Atlanta. I I, I simply have never worked there. Um, I'm not sure where the rumors started, but it's it's reigniting this kind of it's, debate about it seems it seems like tanky stuff. It's just it's it's it's, it's, <laughs> it's nonsense, but it has reignited. And I saw this on the It Could Happen Here subreddit. People talking about like, um, obviously, you know, this is nonsense, but it is a you know, looking at these terrorism charges, it's a simple fact that uh, activists should never talk to press. And um, obviously, a lot of these arrests had nothing to do with anyone talking to the media like folks were present at a riot and the cops were tackling folks that's that's nobody but the cops's fault but there's a there's a there's a conversation to be had about what is the what is the smart balance in terms of getting pr and getting press coverage and getting word of mouth about a radical movement and the fact that doing that will inevitably ramp up pressure like that is that is a reality that, yes. that when when radical activists get attention from the media the state cracks down now does that mean that the media is responsible for the 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 movement getting cracked down or does it simply mean that the cops judge whether or not something's a threat by the amount of press that it's getting you know the the, the this is this is a, an ongoing like thing people are going to be talking about and in a lot of ways it's a continuation of conversations people were having in 2020 but I, i'm interested in because when you went over there we, we had a little a few hours of debate after it became clear that the cops had killed a forest defender over like okay what's the right thing to do should should garrison head over to atlanta um should we have some boots on the ground for this because you'd been covering it for so long and one of the things you pointed out is that there was a call for media coverage from yes. people who were on the ground in Atlanta. Yes. This is something I will get more into when I go in depth yeah. with this for an upcoming episode. Um, probably, probably, probably a two-parter. Um, that's, this is a conversation that people are constantly having in Atlanta. This is a conversation I've been having with people 
nonstop ever since coming here, ever since before coming here. I, you know, this is something I, 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 I don't want to just parachute into someone else's city. I had conversations with multiple people before, before uh, coming over. There's a few aspects to this. The amount of people doing stuff and, you know, how many people are in the forest? Not a, not a giant number of people. There's not hundreds of people living in the woods. There's, mm-hmm. there's not, there's, there's not, there's not tons of people. Um, a, uh, an intentional media strategy has been a part of this movement mm-hmm. since the beginning. Um, even among the insurrectionary anarchists who are here, uh, this is, this has been something that people have been, you know, working on as, as a part of a decentralized movement, having conversations about, uh, there's been a lot of, there's been coverage in the Rolling Stone that people here seem to be pretty happy with. Um, yeah, it was very, and uh, the Guardian also published people extreme, have been like people have been pretty happy. Very good with, article. People yeah. have been very, pretty happy with coverage from the Guardian. Um, the, there's a uh, uh, people have been pretty happy with some stuff from AJ Plus. Um, people have been uh, decently uh, happy with the the work that I've done on this, but based on many conversations, dozens and dozens of conversations I have I've had with people here. Um, ultimately, I don't. For what, for what cops are doing in the forest, I don't think there seems to be a clear correlation between media coverage happening of stuff of of you know the movement and cops' response to the forest. There doesn't there does there's no linked timeline there. Cops are doing stuff in the forest because they want the forest cleared so they can build their police training or their police tra- tra- training facility. From what I've talked with people the amount of, of pressure that has co- been caused by media covering the forest has not only elongated the construction process and elongated the the amount the stuff that they're that they're able to do it's it is it has it has made it harder because this is this this is not a very popular proposal even even before the encampments started it was estimated that like 70% of people in Atlanta were not for this were, were not for the construction of this facility so I think people people make a lot of intentional media choices. That's not to say that there isn't also um, intentionally harmful actors who are trying to frame this as Atlanta burning down, Atlanta in disorder, Antifa yeah. taking over sections of Atlanta. That is absolutely an, another part of it. But there is a very cl- people here have a very clear distinction between between um, bad actors, between people who are you know providing accurate fair coverage of what's going on um and then you know people who are just out to profit which is you know like a lot of like local tv channels um there's there i think uh stuff that happened on the protest on saturdays is is a good example there's this far right account that i'm not going to name um at least not yet I, i might i might talk about it in the future um who you know tries to collect information on on protesters they had there they have someone on the ground who films they also a really good aggregate of like random people's Instagram and TikToks or Snapchats of you know filming filming people from unfortunate angles, um, the local local TV like Fox like the like the local Fox News station, you know tries to get as much sensational footage of crimes as possible, and you know people people to the best of their ability will you know try to try to block that off with like umbrellas if they see that happening, but you know you can it's it's meh. There's definitely a clear intention that. People in the movement do not want the media narratives around this to solely be decided by the state and be decided against people who are in clear opposition to them. That is 
that is absolutely something that people are putting in putting attention in uh they they just that's because that that creates a lot of uh really really harmful scenarios because there's the state itself is already a pretty powerful propaganda machine already a lot of local news just regurgitates state talking points right this is the idea of the fourth estate there is does seem to be a pretty a, a distinction between stuff like the fourth estate and stuff like the derivative idea of the fifth estate of being more of like the people's voice for 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 these for these sorts of movements also in that vein there's stuff like the Atlanta People's Press which is a like decentralized media collective um run by a lot of like rad people who 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 help to coordinate media coverage who help to coordinate um stuff with I mean they have they have worked with people they've worked with us on our on the uh on the uh, history of the old Atlanta prison farm. So I would say there's a lot of thought put into media strategy Um, and not like in like a Libby, like optics way, but like actual effective media strategy that will improve material conditions and will help push the goals of the movement forward. The goal being that the construction of cop city does, does not continue. So there's a lot of thought going into that and they and that is viewed as another like that that is another wing of of the effort right there's there's stuff like the encampments there's stuff like sabotage there's stuff like protests there's stuff like you know like a, a very above board stuff you know that like very uh you know like uh, a, a above ground organizations will do like you know write in campaigns calling campaigns and media strategy is another angle of this because to completely give up the public perception of what's going on to the state is seen as a bad thing. <laughs> so, but this is, this is absolutely a, a contentious topic. I think people in Atlanta have a lot of nuanced conversations about this and media stuff is handled with a lot more intention here than it has been in the Pacific Northwest. Um, that yeah. is my, that is my subjective opinion, but Based on, based on, I mean, based, it's a smaller community, so I think maybe it's easier. It does seem like there's more yeah, solidarity within the community and that, more of I, a, a shared vision. I would say that's true. There is a, the community is forced to reinforce itself. It is small enough that it cannot treat people as disposable. Um, it needs to maintain the people that it has, and so people work through problems, people work through conflicts and ways to actually resolve it and keep going to build everyone up and make them stronger. There is a shared community space, which I've 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 been to a few times, um, and I think even just something like that is is so is so useful in being able to actually keep something that resembles a community. You see a lot of like anarchists um, talk about how like community isn't a real thing there isn't actually community um you know or, or, and in a lot of places i would say that's that's true a lot of places are just click driven um you know a uh, uh, scene drama it it it, uh, it honestly yeah. gets towards or like interscene conflict if, if you don't want to use the word drama um whereas circular firing squad type shit yeah, yeah. whereas here there is such a feeling of actual community like that. That actually is a thing here because people are forced to foster it. We're in the South. We're surrounded. We're, you mm-hmm. know, you're, you're surrounded by a lot of people who want to hurt you. Um, Atlanta is the most surveilled city. There's so many different police forces. There's a police force for Fulton County, the police force for DeKalb County. There's a police force for Atlanta. There's the Georgia state patrol. There's the Georgia Bureau of investigation. There's the Georgia department of Homeland security. There's so many people, so many agencies are involved in this. There's so much 
so much outwards um, threats to people that you really are forced to keep people uh, keep people close and and trust the people around you because the consequences are quite dire. Um, so people take things very yeah. seriously and they put a lot of thought into into a lot of into a lot of things. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean that that also gels with my own experience in the South, right? It's it's easier to find communities of people who are um doing anything kind of radical because there's that that bunker mentality, right? You're under siege, you're surrounded on all sides. And um, you know, that that's very different when you go to a place where there's kind of more like what what would be in other places deviancy is more the norm um and yeah i i guess that that is probably has a lot to do with the fact that this forest defense has so far been so successful in delaying the construction of this facility which um, it which it has construction yeah. construction deadlines continue to have been passed and been passed and been passed it has at the very least showed that stuff like this can be resisted and significantly delayed and at at this point they're projecting construction won't be complete for about four more years and again these deadlines keep getting pushed back and back and that is mm -hmm. really what the movement is trying to do keep these deadlines getting pushed back and back until they just give up on the project or try to put it somewhere else and if they try yeah. to put it somewhere and if they try to put it somewhere else then the forest was defended but then there's still mm -hmm. the stop cop city aspect of being like yeah it yeah. can go somewhere else but we we don't want it there at all and then at that point the movement would change you know very significantly but in terms of the defend the atlanta forest aspect of this right the, the whole goal is to make to make this as unenticing as possible um and there's a multitude of strategies involved in that um including stuff like propaganda agitprop yeah. media strategy sabotage uh direct action call-in campaigns stuff about pressuring the construction agencies all all those sort of things that's so much more because what you're talking about is is what we call in sort of conflict studies a strategy of friction, right? Um, and and so much there's so always so much focus on kind of these like we had in Portland in 2020 these like grand moments that are are very visually spectacular of resistance. But what actually what actually wins because the state has the ability to take a lot of hits. It is a it is a durable force, and if you're going up against a durable force. The only way to win victories is to be durable yourself and to wear away at them. It's it's friction, um, and I, I think that's like that's still the winning play is to keep up pressure. It's just the kinds of pressure, especially now that they've cleared out the tree sitters and stuff, and now that we've seen what they're going to do to people who are arrested at demonstrations. The kinds of friction that can be be a Applied have to change. Otherwise, the movement's going to get worn down before the state does in this fight. Something that Tortuguita has said is that the state is very good at doing violence. We we cannot we we cannot beat the state at violence. The the state's good. The state will probably win that game. That's 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 the entire it, point yeah. of the state. That it like the state has a monopoly on violence. That is the entire point. They will win that. Um, but there, but there are other ways where we can see successes, and we have seen successes before. Um, so it's not over; it will probably grow and change. Um, what actually happens will remain to be seen. 
but I am um, just I'm, I'm prepping to go through a whole bunch of my audio files and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, and, welcome and, to that hell <laughs> and, and and piece and piece together kind of a a, a pretty a pretty succinct uh, deep dive that is that is a, a true a true successor to the to the original on the ground at the defend the Atlanta Force episodes that I did last May. So well, I look forward to that. I'm sure I know everyone else is as well. Um, thank you for going over there and, uh, and being in the thick of it. And, um, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll continue to cover this story, uh, as best we can, but whatever comes in the future. All right. I think that's an episode. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year. And what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastor on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano. Huh? Oh! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Nick It Happened Here, a podcast about things falling apart and how to put them back together again. Uh, I'm your host, Mia Wong, and today I am returning to my roots in the seedy criminal anarchist hacker underground, which has gotten much less seedy and somehow even more gay since I was last there. <laughs> and with, with me to talk about this is Maya Arson Crimeu, who is most recently famous as the person who owned an airline so hard they got a copy of the fucking no-fly list, which is... <laughs> Yeah, just just first day things. <laughs> yeah, so Maya, how how are, how are you how are you doing being deluged with <laughs> one trillion interview requests and? Um. So yeah, it's not my first time experiencing like a 
big news cycle, mm-hmm. but this is certainly the biggest one yet. It's I'm surprised that this is bigger than the one I've had before with other stories. Yeah. But I feel like becoming a trans femme meme at the same time as I have like a national security uh, news cycle going on probably helped a bit. I'm uh, so, I, I'm yeah. I'm I'm very happy for Weed Cat like that 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 cat <laughs> did like that every every single yeah. other thing that has happened to Weed Cat has like done that thing dirty. But I'm I'm happy for yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, we cat is now just like a hacking icon, and I'm so here for it. Yeah, we, did did we you love see, to see like it? like like just like ten, uh, like 15 minutes before we got on call? There's now a like Bingle meme from the SCP Foundation on oh their Twitter. Oh my god! They commissioned, an art- <laughs> they commissioned an artist to make an, a Bingle meme. Like the, it has just turned into a thing now. Like that that's the wildest it's so thing. Good. It's it's not even it's not even like the whole hacking story anymore. It's just the fact yeah, that I have bingle. turned into a meme. Like how how yeah. And especially that bingle turned into a meme because that started as a like Discord in joke. Like that that's all it was, and now it's the name of this cat. Uh, <laughs> well, okay, so we should explain for, for for people for people who don't know what this cat is. This is the Pokemon Sprigoro. Is yeah. this Sprigorado? How do you is Sprigatito? I think. Yeah, Sprigatito. I don't yeah. know how to properly pronounce. It. Yeah, yeah, neither do I. It's it's Italian. I, I I'm under I'm under no obligation to pronounce an Italian sounding thing correctly. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, the, it's the wheat cat. Like Wheat Cat and Bingle are now the only two acceptable names for this Pokemon. Yeah, <laughs> the, 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 the <laughs> yeah but in in, in, uh, in in the blog where you went through and talked about how you got the no fly list by owning this thing, you'd posted a picture of of, of this, this little, exactly, this little, this little yeah. boy. Yeah, I did actually like take that picture while I was like hacking this stuff and like <laughs> talking in some like small friends Discord about it, and I just posted that uh, together with like the phrase "This aviation shit gets serious." Uh, that's why that's also in the blog. I expected that to become the meme that blows up that this aviation shit be- gets serious because that's just so stupid as like yeah. the thing. But. I guess Bingle it is, and that's funny because yeah, it was just an in-joke nonsense <laughs> word, and now the entire world knows about it, and it's like a transfem thing. It rules. But <sighs> it rules, yeah. So I okay, I, I guess we should talk about what actually you did. So I I, I am not a very technical person. I, I'm out here defying like defying transgender stereotypes by sucking ass at coding. <laughs> um, <laughs> So my my understanding of what happened is you were browsing a list of servers that are connected to the internet that you can use through sort of like various search engines that do this. Excellent. And you stu- yeah. you you stumbled upon the server that belongs to Commute Air and then they just like had a bunch of hard coded privileges there and like Exactly. AWS yeah. and, and it's still it's still it's still funny to me how like I realized what it was because I saw like the word A cars and stuff and I was like, wait, that that reminds me of like mentor pilot YouTube videos because of course I'm an autistic trans fan and binge watch mentor pilot while eating dinner. Uh, so so that is the only reason I clocked it as like an aviation thing and as something I should dig into deeper because like you can imagine, like, while I'm going through these search results, I'm looking at, like, hundreds of servers in a day, and most of the stuff I decide is boring or it was too easy to hack, so I'm not going further because <laughs> I have ADHD. Um, so, yeah, and in this case, I was like, wait, that's an aviation word. I, I've heard that before. Um, so I digged a little deeper, and there were just passwords there. And, and then, like... Two minutes after I found that server, I was looking at, like, ACARS messages, as in, like, messaging between ground stations and airplanes. 
And I was just like, yeah, this is a story and started tweeting about it, looking for journalists to work with, because with stories like this, I like to work with journalists from the very start, because I want to make sure it doesn't get wiped under the rug when I report it to a company. So I make sure that when I do reach out and get things fixed, I reach out via journalists so that the companies know, yeah, this is being reported on. So they can't be like, yeah, we will fix it under the condition that you never tell anyone about our bad security. Because like the whole point of what I'm doing is exposing like the security issues, uh, but also exposing, yeah, with a political background at the end of the day. Yeah. And I guess like another thing, I don't, I don't know how many people sort of are aware of this, but like an, another thing that has happened with people who have tried to go to companies and been like, hey, here's a security thing is like the company tries to like go after them criminally, like immediately, yeah. which sucks ass and <laughs> is the worst yeah so 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 from that standpoint it doesn't even matter if i like do it like this or actually report it to them but this way i get to talk about it publicly and like that's yeah. important not because i want cloud like i i i, I don't mind the cloud but like <laughs> yeah yeah and so okay so i, I there, there, there's been a lot of focus on the fact that you found the no-fly list on there which is exactly. very funny but, okay, yeah, like, A, why, like, okay, one of the things I'm trying to figure out, why was there, ju- why were there just messages from, like, ground crews to airplanes just, like, sitting around on this random server that's okay, just, like, the exposed messages, to the internet? Right, so the messages weren't directly on that server, but, like, it's a server where they, like, uh, for testing purposes, like, uh, I don't know how much I can understand, really, but where they, like, test the software automatically, and, and so there is all, and... Because of how they configured the server, uh, I w- could just have access to all the source code, which included lots of passwords, hmm. for example, for like the server that then had the ACARS messages on it. Okay. So um, it? Okay. But yeah, at, at, or, or access credentials for APIs that would have allowed me to update the crew on a flight. Jesus or Christ. Cancel yeah. flights, or Which, like, if you think about it, that's almost the bigger story. The fact yeah. That I, like, at least theoretically could have been able to change crew, crews because, like, that's the real terrorism risk. <laughs> yeah, like... If, if I'm just, like, if, if I'm just allowed to spell it out like that. Like, that, yeah. that, that's the dream of any... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, I mean, you know, you know, like, I mean, one of the things you were talking about when, when you're writing about this was that, like, journalists thought that you were the one who had, like, caused all of the flight delays. I was like, no, that was just their computer breaking. No, yeah. But, yeah, like... Yeah, like that was just... F- Funny because I didn't even know the thing with TS uh, yeah. with the FAA <laughs> happened, but I was like tweeting about, oh, I have a big aviation story. Any journalists interested? It's like a security breach, and people were like, wait, what did you do to the FAA? And I was like, huh, what FAA? <laughs> oh, so that happened. Like, I am so not up to date on news anymore. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so for people who don't know what that story is, so basically, the the Federal Aviation Administration had a computer problem. It was the very, the very, very short version. They had a computer problem, and this grounded, like, a shit ton of flights because there these huge, like, computer bottlenecks where if, you know, we saw this over, like, like, a, uh, like last month when there was that, when all of those flights got down by uh, uh, Southwestern because their computer system just went down. Right, yeah. Um, it, it's the same thing except US-wide. <laughs> yeah. But it, it's just funny because, yeah, I first found this server, like, exactly the day after, like, 
that was literally a day after the FAA incident. So people yeah. were <laughs> rightly assuming that that was me, which it obviously wasn't. But like, it would have been cool. Yeah, but <laughs> it's also like it, 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 it is very disturbing to me that like this kind of stuff is just sitting there and like someone, yeah, could just like theoretically go yeah. in and screw with all of this stuff, which is like. And then also the fact that, like, there was just all of, like, the personal information of all of the pilots on there. Like, what the hell? Like, that is... Yeah, that... Yeah. That is terrifying. Yeah, it's, it is crazy how much stuff is just out there. And, like, that's part of what I try to show with my work. It's just... Yeah, there is so much stuff out there, and it's just waiting to be found. And I both mean that in, in terms of, like, yeah, you can find shit if you try to. But also in the sense of things are not secure. Like yeah, like all the systems are are like entire lives depend on nowadays. Not none of those systems are really yeah. secure. They're entirely dependent on like one system administrator who doesn't get paid enough. Our our entire like computer systems depend on like a bunch of furries um, yeah. being <laughs> motivated enough to do their work. Uh, so basically, like the moral of the story is pay furries well enough. Yeah. And- <laughs> Yeah, and, and this, this is probably too, like, in everything that I was thinking about when I was looking at this, which is, like, you know, okay, so, like, when, when I was, like, a teenager, like, one, one of the things that I think I was the most wrong about that I believed was, like, I, I actually genuinely believed that, like, automating cars was a good idea because humans are really, really bad at driving. And, th- and, then, and then I had to learn to program, and I had to, like, see scientist code, and I had to, I, 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 op- I open a program. And there's a section of it that no one knows how it works. And I, I look, I look at the notes, and the notes say, "I don't, I, I didn't write this. I don't know how it works. This was produced. This was produced at 4 a.m. on like, like 700 milligrams of caffeine." And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, oh. <laughs> on at least caffeine, if not amphetamine." Yeah. Well, to, to be fair, <laughs> these, these are these were astronomers, so I, I, I think it was actually right. just right. a lot of caffeine and not amphetamines. But right, right, yeah, right. like you know, and then I had the realization that the, the, the only single thing that we as humans are worse at, at than driving is coding exactly yeah we are we are even worse at that and then the other thing we're also very bad at is labeling data which oh, is like God. the whole thing machine learning is dependent on yep. like <laughs> because like the entire intelligence of like an automotive car like a self-driving car is entirely dependent on how intelligent the like underpaid workers in in kenya are yeah that, get paid like two bucks an hour to label things as car, human, and child, and then make moral decisions of whether yep. or not those should get run over. Um, like, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Like, like this is you know, one, one of one of my sort of political things that I'm coming to is I I I I I I, I think the only person people who should be allowed to do machine learning are astronomers, and no one else should be allowed to do it. <laughs> and even they, and you know, because they have to, they, like they have a legitimate reason, which is that like they actually a they're doing a bunch of big data. Like most of astronomy is just big data analysis. Yeah. And and then B, like the, the the analysis itself doesn't really hurt anyone. Uh, you 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 can yeah, argue like, about just, where they're just, putting the telescopes, but like you're not you're not <laughs> like <laughs> yeah, just like anything that involves humans probably yeah. should not also involve AI in any way. Yeah, yeah. terrible idea. But yeah, I guess, I guess okay. So circling back around to the point I was going to make, and then got distracted talking about AI because such is the world. Um, yeah, so, you know, it, 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 it's really remarkable to me, like, how little technical skill you need to just, like, absolutely own enormous corporations and governments. Yeah. And, you know, but but the other thing that, that, that struck me about this that I've been thinking about for a while is that, like, okay, on the one hand, you have how easy hacking is, like, 
even, like this server stuff's like easier than the stuff that I remember back in the day, which was a lot of like people like you, you, so, someone somewhere long ago in a galaxy far, far away wrote like a script and then you just copy and paste it into like every single text box on a web page. Yeah. And like, that's, I think like, that's probably maybe like more hackery quote unquote than just like looking through a list of servers. Yeah. But like, <laughs> even that is like the level of technical sophistication is so low. Or, or you know, yeah, you, you don't need technical yeah. skills. You just need to be stupid enough to pull it up. Like, yeah, like- <laughs> but but you know, but the, 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 the thing that I realized about this, and I was thinking about this, was like, on the one hand, the, the level of technical sophistication you for this is extremely low. On the other hand, one of the sort of like like one one of the sort of trends of of the the, the way capitalism has been distributing digital technology, which is sort of by apping it, like by by sorry, which has been packing it into apps and these closed garden ecosystems and like putting UIs in between you and like what well, like you and what's actually happening in your computer mm-hmm. has been, you know, it, it, it's, it's been designed in a way to make it quote unquote consumer friendly, but also it, it's been designed in a way such that like successive generations of computer users just have less and less knowledge of how their devices yeah. technology actually yeah. work. Yeah. That's like, like there's that whole thing of like about how, how like, younger kids nowadays yeah. don't understand the concept of folders yeah. anymore because like that's completely abstracted away on like smartphones yeah, and tablets and chromebook in particular uh, which i i, I, I yeah. genuinely think we need to ban chromebooks in schools to like just just yeah. like for, for for the sake of human yeah i forgot how big of a thing that is in the US yeah it's awful like oh god they're the worst Ugh. Yeah, I don't know, like, at the end of the day, the, what I wanted to say earlier about, like, how easy it is to hack all the big corporations and stuff, and it's just, like, the answer as to why is just capitalism. Yeah. It's it's cheaper not to give a shit about yep. cybersecurity. You, 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 it, it's cheaper to just pay when you get hacked than to, like, secure your shit up front, because, like, the only people that will really suffer is, like, your customers yeah, and your employees, <laughs> and they can forget. Your your shareholders are going to be just fine. Like, well, and, yeah, and, you know, and you, you look at the way the regulatory structure works. It's like, okay, so what, what, what happens yeah. if you get in trouble or something like this? Well, the government takes a cut, and that's it. Yeah, yeah, that, that's it. Like it, it, it's literally, it's it's literally like you can budget getting hacked. There, there is cyber insurance now. You can get insured yeah. against getting hacked. Like, like uh, it's it's just capitalism uh, at work. And I, 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 I feel like one of the things that one of the things that journalists have sort of, I don't know, and, and I, I understand why they focus on it, but I feel like there's a lot of focus in in sort of like in tech journalism and in journalism on sort of ha- on the hacking stuff in like the really big sophisticated like Stutniks or uh, what was the what was yeah. the, the more recent one can't remember the name of it but like yeah like the, the, the really sort of convoluted trawling program the things that like you yeah. know take nation state level resources and it's like well yeah I mean, you know this, this was always the thing with like the with like the nsa too where it's like well okay so right. the 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 the, 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 the on, on the one hand the nsa does have enough money to like spend like 50 million dollars factoring one number so they could break a bunch of encryption on the other hand like they can just force U.S. companies yeah. to give them access. And, and also, <laughs> they force U.S. companies to give, give them access and also, like, I don't know, they can they can get most of this information because, like, some server admin in, like, a farm in, like, the middle of rural Nebraska, yeah. like, misconfigured a file, like, misconfigured a server. So, like, you know... I, <laughs> I don't know. That's also what I find funny about the things I find because I, like, almost exclusively go for, like, the low-hanging fruit because, like... Why would I invest more effort when I can get the really big scoops like this? Yeah. And also, sometimes I do kind of think about how, hey, uh, you know, like, maybe I just cut off access to the CIA. Maybe this was, like, how the CIA got this access. Maybe yeah. maybe the NSA was here. Uh, 
obviously most likely not in most cases, but it's just a funny little thought of like who did I just cut access yeah, well, off I mean, to by reporting this I, issue? I, I, I will say this, like I, I can't imagine that there isn't someone at the NSA and there isn't someone at the CIA whose job it is to is to do exactly the same thing you do and like scroll through oh, all these server list every day. A- a- like absolutely. Like 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 that that's why by now I use Sumai like yeah. for the search engines. There's Shodan, which is like the famous US one, which is why I still always say I found it on Shodan, even though by now I use yeah. Sumai. <laughs> because Shodan has like half of like all US IP censored and they have an artificial delay between finding the servers and showing them to mm. you. And have really bad search. And I'm pretty sure it's just because at one point the US government got upset because they kept getting hacked. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, but like the Chinese are very willing to give me all the yeah. US IPs ever. That, that They do censor a lot of Chinese IPs, though. But like, well, I, I think a lot of that was. So I, I, was, I, was, I was trying to figure out why that name was really familiar. But then I, I had this, I remembered that there was a story where some researcher did like almost the exact same thing you did to a Chinese security company and found out that they were doing. Yeah. Get, like, guess what? Exactly the same shit the U.S. government was doing, which was using using a bunch of surveillance cameras to spy on Muslims, and it was like, well, this is great. Yeah, it's it's always like like it's always appointing and doing the same thing behind the scenes. Yeah. Like, yeah. Okay, so we unfortunately going to have to take an ad break. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but then once we return yeah. from capitalism, we will go back to opposing capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to twenty twenty three. All right, and we're back. Nice. Yeah, so speaking of any capitalism, that that was another thing I wanted to sort of talk about, which is that okay, so like long 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 ago in a galaxy far far away, little 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 baby 15-year-old Mia was radicalized like back 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 when I was overthrowing trying to overthrow my first government, it was um <laughs> a lot a lot of it was being in the same sphere as a lot of sort of anarchist hackers that were in the sort of like loose anonymous sphere. But, you know, by, yeah. by, like, 2015, 2016, like, that stuff was kind of falling apart, like, partially because of infighting, yeah. partially because of Fed infiltration, partially because, you know, I, like... Everyone got arrested. Yeah, like, yeah. At that point, all the big players have been arrested, like, three years prior. Yeah, and, and you know, and the, the, the other thing that was going on, too, I think, was, like, Anonymous, like, its politics were always really incoherent. Like, you, you had, I don't know, you had just, like, every, well, like, you know, like, the thing I remember was there was a big split between, like... Basically, the fascists and the anarchists between, like, like over Trump specifically, like... Yeah, I, I think the thing with Anonymous is just, like, the way it started, it started as just, like, a group of trolls. Yeah, unfortunately, it was like, well, okay. The pitch is to say, like, I mean, it, it makes sense that uh, Anonymous is, is the way it is and has been the way it has been. Uh, I think it's still, like, important that it exists oh, definitely. and that it yeah. motivates people. Uh, like, I have been involved with Anonymous before, uh, there's the one thing I can talk about with, like, Operation Myanmar, where we did, like, support things, um, that was shortly before my indictment, but, yeah, it's, it's interesting, like, Anonymous brings people together to do operations, yeah, and, um, I, I... and that's what they do, and they can do PR for stuff, uh, yeah, I, I don't wanna, like, Talk down on them. Yeah, no, but I, I think like well, I, I think like, especially yeah. especially like like in I, like I think, like when I was getting involved in 2013, it was like like it was it was a lot different. Like it was you know like it, like it was a thing. Yeah, it was, it was it was it was both like a thing and also it wasn't just like like it, it wasn't just that it was sort of like okay we're we're like we're we're like trolling a, we're, we're trolling a government by like taking down their web pages or whatever. Like they were actually sort of there was like there was real coordination between like 
people like you know revolutionaries yeah. on the ground in like egypt or in like yeah, brazil that, that, stuff like that and that, that like that does still happen yeah that does still happen it's just less of a public thing like that was what we did in 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 Myanmar yeah. as well as where we did communications with people on the ground where we helped them communicate among each other where yeah. we helped them keep the internet go up even when the government tried to turn it which off which is really and sick other fund other other fun shenanigans like that uh, and also archival and that like just in case some mm-hmm. kids do- does decide to DDoS literally every web page in the country which is mostly nonsensical but like yeah but I, I i do find it interesting how like yeah there's like the 2012 2013 generation that was mostly anonymous dom- dominated and now we're in like this new generation yeah. where it's just small little groups yeah and i, I wanted to talk about that because and it's much more decentralized i don't know i it, it's weird to talk about it because uh, at the end of the day, I inspired a lot of it, which is really weird to say. <laughs> yeah, it, it's so weird to say that I like, but yeah, I'm kind of part of what revived hacktivism, and it, it sounds so so pretentious of me to just say that myself. But like, <laughs> yeah, no, it, it is kind of what happened in like 2019, 2020. Yeah, and like that that was what was interesting to me too, because it it was it was very like. I don't know, like, the, the, the 2012 stuff was also, like, it was very, very, I guess, media-centered in a way, where it was it was about drawing, like, drawing masses of people into things, and then using it to sort of get media attention, using it to sort of, like, I don't know, be, be, be this sort of, like, online, like, also this sort of, like, online social movements in a way that, that I think is very different than the modern yeah. stuff. So this is my conception of it, though, because I, I've also been kind of, like... I, I don't know. I, I I was off doing other stuff in 2019 that had nothing to do with this. So yeah, I'm I'm cu- I'm curious. Well, okay. How do I put this? Uh, so I I I I'm I'm curious. A like how how you see the politics of these new groups, either sort of as different from what came before it. I I think it's hard for a lot of the groups. It's hard to like see what their politics are, mm-hmm. and some of them aren't even like there's. Things like lapses that aren't specifically yeah. doing hacktivism, but they're ac- a- accidentally doing anti-corporate activism <laughs> by just leaking yeah. everything. Uh, like, uh, and that's like groups that are like in the way that they, they operate are very clearly inspired by my work that I used to do. Um, and they're just not very like political yeah. per se. Yeah. They, but but I still call them hacktivists because even if it might not be their intention, they're doing activism and they're making corporations angry and wasting corporate resources. And in my book, that counts as like yeah. activism. And the fact that they, in a way, fight for like freedom of information, even if that might not be the goal. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I feel like that is the main unifying factor now. It's just a fight for information because like... They're currently, like, the single biggest uh, hacktivist thing happening right now since, like, 2019 is just leaking. The whole leaktivism thing that happened before as well, but, like, now that's, like, the main thing. Before it was often a lot, like, just DDoSing and stuff, but now we're so focused on, like, getting documents, getting software, getting uh, files, getting, like, proof that things happened, getting fucking no-fly list. It's just... It's just a very different environment where, like, the goals are probably about the same in a lot of ways, at least for the people who do have an ideology. Yeah. But, but like, yeah, I, I feel like it's just much more focused on, like, releasing information into the free, which I find really great. Like, that, that is kind of my big fight that I try to devote myself to. 
Yeah, I, I wanted to ask also sort of just about your personal anarchism because I don't know. I like talking about anarchism, and yeah, yeah. everyone has their own. Um, I don't know. It's 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 a difficult question, and I feel my answer to this question changes like every other mm-hmm. day. <laughs> um, I especially find it hard because like I am like doing work in very specific focused bits of like anarchist work and so i don't really want to lock myself into like some sort so so it's it's like very fluid i'm just like obviously against states i'm like (laughs) i don't know it's it's hard no no governments no shitty corporations (laughs) and just like having fun with friends and being gay that is like this rules we take this (laughs) this is a good form of anarchism (laughs) yeah i don't know just some form of like queer anarchism and, and yeah yeah being gay and doing crimes it's a it's a good it's a yeah. good thing <laughs> I, I guess in a way like what kind of defines me and what keeps getting me into the spotlight is that i do just kind of have like a very strong moral compass and i go by that rather by what's legal or not legal yeah. or like sure i try to stay within like some safe boundaries especially now like post indictment um given that there are definitely even more eyes on me now than, than before and this podcast is definitely being played at some fbi <laughs> oh yeah uh, there's 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 oh yeah uh. so that's something to consider uh but like yeah i feel like i feel like that's kind of what i want to demonstrate is that like if you have morals you can't just stick by them like no one is stopping you from doing that they, they might try to but like you can just stick with your morals. Yeah, and I, I think uh, it's, I think it's worth mentioning, even like you know, okay, like a, a lot of people go to prison for doing stuff like this. Some of them didn't. Yeah. Like there, there, there's at like to the best of my knowledge, there is at least still one Lulsec guy who's just in the wind who they never got. Yeah, and, and like and Lulsec, like they 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 had a yeah. fed mole in the group, and one of these people still got away. Fuck Sabu. Yeah, fuck uh, it, by the just, way. Just just, 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 yeah, just, just in general. Real quick. Um, F- fuck Sabu. Yeah. <laughs> so for people who don't do Sabu's basically the guy that the the the, the feds flipped inside of Lulsec, who got everyone yeah. sent to prison. Um. Like, like, yeah, like, fuck him. I, I do have to say, I, I kind of get why he flipped. Like, he at that point already had a family and stuff. But, like, I get that that is hard. Uh, but still, you, yeah. you gave up your friends yeah. for Sim- simply do like, not safety. And, like, like, I don't know. And the fact that he still, like, has some sort of image, honestly, I don't know. It's just, it's just InfoSec community, yeah, it I sucks. guess. It's... <laughs> I don't know. It's It's interesting, for sure. But yeah, I I can't comment too much on yeah. my own case. There are a lot of fu- there are a lot of funny jokes to be made that I shouldn't. Yeah, un- the feds suck. Uh, yeah. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say yeah. that. Like, oh god, it's it's been yeah. it's 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 been a, it's been a bad week of feds in the U.S. too. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Honestly, just one thing again about the TSA hack. I am so curious what's gonna happen with the congressional inquiry. Yeah, I don't know if you saw that. Yeah, but like the. Especially since, like, uh, th- this means that the Republicans are going to be exposed to my blog post, <laughs> presumably. Uh, 
And I am so excited for all the slurs they can come up with. Um, uh, it, it, it is going to be extremely funny. I'm, I'm also very excited yeah. for, like, the TERFs to be like, this is terrorism, see? We've been right all along. Yeah, yeah. Uh. I have gotten that before. I have gotten TERF replies before uh, on, like, articles about me where they were like, see, no, women don't commit crime. So this is clear proof. that." This. And it's just like, what, what are you talking about? Uh, this is this is my male genes coming yeah, out. Yeah, it's also like, ma'am, committing crimes. ma'am, you are this British. Is, this is, like, do do you do you do you, do you know what people what what people did so you have the right to vote? Like, come on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that like that's the funny thing is that they at the same time also like fetishize the whole suffragette thing. Yeah, while having no fucking clue what that movement was. Yeah, about. it's like no 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 suffragette would would would, would ever horsewhip Rishi Sunak. I mean, not no suffragette. No. No, no turf would ever host Rishi Sunak, unlike unlike the suffragettes, who yeah. yeah, exactly. I don't know. It's it's silly. I'm surprised how little harassment I've gotten on Twitter so far. If we exclude the whole bi lesbian discourse oh bit God. that I, happened yesterday, yeah, I, I I'm so sorry for restarting that discourse. Okay. I think me talking about that single handedly restarted <laughs> that discord across. Uh, I mean, it, it, ju- it just hap- it just happens periodically, just, like. Yeah, yeah, it's just funny because, like, I was just like, yeah, this is gonna get me some hate replies, but, like, within five minutes, I had 21 private quotes. Jesus Christ. Yeah, I mean, like, my, I, my, I, like, my, my I, I won't make an official statement on that, which is that if you give a single shit about people calling themselves bi-lesbians, like, I, pl- please let me know so I can trade lives with you. Like, you, you seem to have, like, very few problems going on. I, I would love yeah. to, like, have grown I, up I in the know. world where, like, that's, like, that's the thing that you think, like, matters. Like, I don't know. I, I think, it's, I think <sighs> it's funny how there's people who were, like, wanting to follow me, wanting to interact with me uh, as, like, an it, it's Therian uh, kitten uh, who, like, does uh, funny things to the U.S. government, but then they draw the line at, at the specific sexuality yeah it's like really and, and like i i then made like a post where i was like sorry i deleted that i didn't i don't have the energy to deal with people getting so upset over an innocent word and that has gotten so many many quote tweets being like yeah and that innocent word in question was by lesbian as if i said like the n-word or something like that oh was literally God. the kind of Break. response i got and it's just like do you not have anything else to do yeah, in like, your day the, 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 like, like uh... Like, do, do you know how many people the cops killed last week? Can you please do something? Like, hey, come on. Out of all the things know. that are happening here right now, like. <sighs> yeah, especially then when some of the people that come up with that are, like, non-binary lesbians, which, if you know anything about this purity discourse, like, half of the, them would also, like, throw yeah. these under the pit because yeah. no, non-binary lesbians also can't exist. And, like, it's, it's <sighs> just, why are you, why, why are you fighting for the turf? Like, that, that is my one single question I have to all the 14-year-old queers on Twitter.com. Yeah. Also, why did that why did the discourse ever escape Tumblr? Like, that was well, enough it's, it's, of it's, that it's, discourse it's, it's because, four it's because years all ago. The Tumblr, because all the Tumblr refugees came to Twitter. Yeah, but, but uh, they could have left the discourse there. <laughs> yeah, but no, the, the world... I don't know. Twitter, tw- Twitter, Twitter in the last, like... like okay, like, Twitter's discourse has never been good. But like in the last no, couple obviously of years, not. It's, been, no. it's just been getting steadily worse, and it's it's yeah. 
It's just the same site. Like, it's it's not even that it's just bad discourse. It's just the same discourse every week. And I'm just tired of it. And I guess now that I'm a big account, I have to have an opinion on everything. Yeah. Um. <laughs> and also, the, 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 the fun part about being trans is every, everyone is, like, like absolutely razor-focused for, like, the exact yeah. one word that you say wrong so they can act so they can like le- like legitimately quote unquote be transphobic at you and it's like this is yeah. great like this is a great system that we've developed for yeah existing yeah, with this. each other I, I we could simply it. not yeah, I, do this <laughs> like, yeah you can just say like that the fact that literally like i was like i'm gonna see what happens if i say by lesbian on an account with twenty four thousand followers and and the fact that it literally took seconds for people to tell me to tell all their mutuals to unfollow me because I'm highly problematic um, was it, <laughs> it was quite interesting. And someone was just like, "This has completely shattered my worldview." And I'm just like, "Sorry, if your worldview gets shattered by my sexuality, you have some soul seeking to do." Like yeah, like I, uh... like, like 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 actually like. Uh, huh. Like I, 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 I grew, I grew like, up. Like, like for some of the, for, for some people, me saying the phrase "bi lesbian" was genuinely like my milkshake doc moment. Yeah, it was like it was like a, a second, <laughs> a, 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 what's it called? A, a second sexuality description has hit the towers. Like it was. <laughs> oh, yeah, God. it's so like God. I, it was Which, like five a.m. when I made that tweet. It was just like, <laughs> oh, I'm gonna get a little silly with it, and and I. I just expected like a backlash, but not that much. It was just too much, and yeah, like I know it's not like backlash that matters, and I should just ignore it. But it's just like so overwhelming. Yeah, I guess. Do Do you have anything else that you want to say? I don't know. I think that's that covers like most of the things I have to talk about. Uh, cool. Yeah, just like be gay, do crime, hack the planet. Uh, oh my god. I, I, I it, genuinely, it, it is one of my favorite things in the world that they made the movie Hackers, and it was the worst depiction it's of Hackers. So but then also, yeah, so, right, like, like right. I, I, it was funny. I, so I, I didn't watch that. I mean, okay, I watched it like not for the first time. Like it wasn't like 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 I was I was like not that old when I watched it. But it, it was after I like first ran into Hackers, and so it, it took me a while to figure out that like wait hold on no hack the planet is a thing that everyone says, but that's actually because yeah. it's a joke about Hackers, which I love. Yeah, see, the fu- I still find it funny how Hackers is a movie that got hacking culture completely wrong and changed it forever. Yeah, because like <laughs> because like there is I don't know if you've ever seen that, but from like DefCon from 1996, yeah. there's a page on the official DefCon website talking about how bad hackers is and how it gets everything <laughs> wrong and no one should watch this movie. And now you look at this like 20 years later, and that's just what hacking culture turned into. Yeah, in the it's very and funny. The, the most incredible thing about hackers is that someone managed to get the queerest fucking movie ever made. Uh, made by one of the biggest companies in Hollywood and also make it about hacking and also, like it's it's the best f- piece of cinema ever and I stand by this like it fucking sucks in a lot of ways yeah but it's just they just managed to make a movie where no one is cis somehow and yeah, it has true. Angelina Jolie in it yeah. like <laughs> so no one is cis it's, it's pretty amazing I, I will say the the, the 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 two Asian characters are kind of whack but yeah other than that it's like yeah it's a it's a like like it's it's a whack movie like 
Like, if you look at it objectively, it's a pretty bad movie. Yeah, like, like there's, I don't know, there, there was shit, like, in, in a lot of ways, stuff in the 90s is absolutely terrible, but also, like, there was stuff you could just do in movies in the 90s that, like, you can't now. Yeah. Like, like they, okay, yeah. well, like, well, my, my example of this is, I, I may have said this on the podcast before, but, like, they, they so they, 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 they did a, like, completely straight, like, modern day live adaptation of, of Romeo and Juliet. That is like it's Romeo and Juliet. It's it's exactly the lines in Shakespeare, but it's like with characters set in like the like modern times and they're shooting guns at each other. But like what one of the things that happens in that is there's just like a black guy doing drag and it's just like a thing. Like nobody comments on it. Like it's just like a thing and he's yeah. having a good time. And you could not like like people 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 would show up to yeah like people people would people like yeah like I would be on Tucker Carlson like yeah like like people people yeah you'd have like mobs showing up in front of your house like it's yeah yeah uh, like I don't know like yeah if hackers came out now we we would have like Tucker Carlson complaining about the woke mob trying to yeah. turn the kids into gay hacktivists yeah like uh, I don't know. I, I love the movie so much, not not because it's good, but because it's culturally important. Yes. And, <laughs> and, and yeah, and, and, and the characters are, like, great. Like, they made everyone queer somehow, and I'm still not <laughs> sure whether that was intentional or not. I, I, I don't know. My, I, I lean towards they didn't know what they were doing, and that makes it even funnier. Yeah, it makes it so much better, and also the fact that it's like got past like producers and everything, and it was made yep. and it's <laughs> the queerest piece of like Hollywood media I have ever seen. That wasn't meant to be queer. Yeah. It's just like, yeah. yeah, yeah, cool that we went on this tangent because yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, lo- we 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 simply love to see it. Be gay, do crimes, hack the planet. Uh, this yeah. is not legally for the FBI. This is not legally actionable. This is a joke. <laughs> yeah, this is <laughs> as a you joke. can tell These are clearly. Famous catchphrases. Yes, from the movie hackers, which you could watch. <laughs> from the movie hackers. Yeah. <laughs> in places. Yeah. In, oh, in if, pla- you can watch it very legally on the internet. I actually don't know if it's on any streaming platform. I don't think. I so. I, I, I watched it. I, I think it is because I watched it with my family kind of recently, which was a <laughs> wild time. Uh, it's probably streaming. Oh, somewhere. it's 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 an Apple TV apparently. Huh. Yeah, so it's there. Or you it can find it be. there. You can find it in other places. It can it can find it somewhere, both legally and illegally. Yes. <laughs> if, I, if I'm allowed to endorse like uh, piracy on your podcast, it's we, we we did an entire episode about how to pirate stuff. So oh hell yeah yeah, yeah. So, so yeah you can find it both legally and illegally. And if you're lucky, I'm the one seeding the torrent for you. So. <laughs> Well, on that, oh, actually, okay. But, but the, the other thing I actually should be for you: if, if people want to find you, where can they find you? I'm on Twitter at underscore nine crime you. And in case Twitter suspends me once again for the sixth time, I have a website <laughs> at maya.crimeu.gay. It rules. It's so good. It yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, that's like half the reason it. I'm famous now. It's just because my <laughs> website is pink. Um, it's great. Yeah, so this this has been Naked Happened Here. Yeah. You can find us at Happened Here Pod at Twitter and Instagram. Um, yeah, I guess I'm at itmechr3. Uh, yeah, go in, go in crime. Happy. 
happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Jean, and Vlastor on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Jean! Run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Once again, this is the crew from It's Going Down, squatting the airwaves of It Could Happen Here. On today's show, we're going to look at the growing crisis around homelessness and how the state has moved to address it with brutal sweeps and new laws that target the poor. In the wake of the global COVID-19 pandemic, the U.S. housing crisis deepened and homelessness grew. Following the George Floyd Rebellion, Republicans pointed to a rising murder rate during the 2022 election cycle, along with growing encampments of the houseless as examples of rampant democratic mismanagement and the supposed end result of defunding the police. In reality, two years after the uprising, both funding for the police has only increased along with the number of people killed per year by law enforcement, while growing police budgets have had no impact on crime. Meanwhile, both parties have embraced a draconian crackdown on the houseless, as a slew of new laws target sleeping outside and police move against encampments, even in the midst of extreme weather. But a new wave of resistance is also materializing, as communities mobilize to provide mutual aid, fight for access to housing, and resist sweeps of encampments. On today's episode, we investigate the history of these struggles and how these tactics, ranging from squatting to encampment defense, are spreading across the social terrain as the current crisis deepens and more people find themselves out in the cold. But to kick things off, let's talk about state strategy. Just why are they carrying out these sweeps? 
I think one of the first things that comes to mind for me is how this behavior from like the Democrats or like liberals or progressives isn't an anomaly that they are, you know, that their role is facilitating a capitalist state just with slightly different tactics than the Republicans. But basically, they're trying to do that. What they're doing, which is basically demonizing uh, unhoused people and sort of pushes the blame of um what's going on of the failings basically of our culture onto these individuals that are unhoused rather than on their failures as like mayors of democratic cities or whatever um and the kind of logical outcome of class-based capitalist extractive society and when they can just make it that instead of it being like a social problem that people are unhoused they can make it these bad homeless people and they're dirty and crime or whatever and just kind of try and eliminate that to protect their image. But I think it's just a way of like scapegoating a built-in problem with how they operate. Um, and actually, it's something that makes me think, especially thinking about San Francisco in terms of like precedents for this. It makes me think about the ugly laws, which um, for anyone who doesn't know, that was something kind of in the 1800s. San Francisco implemented it in 1867, which was a law um, forbidding people who were kind of like unsightly, according to this law, um, to not be seen in the street. So if people were physically disabled or they were begging or even limping, there were laws targeting them. And part of it even says that anything that's triggering like disgust or guilt is like to not be seen. And I feel like it's a really similar thing that's happening now. And so, yeah, progressive liberals, they do this. <laughs> I'm glad that you brought up ableism because I think that this ties in real, real well into that. So we live in essentially like an extremely able society that says if you don't work, you die. And I think criminalizing homeless people is a huge part of that. So, I mean, really think about it. We have to rent our bodies to corporations so we can get money to pay rent to landlords. Essentially, we're being paid a tax to live. But how do you force people? How else do you get people to do the drudgery that we have to do at work? If you don't like show them the consequences of that. So like if they were nice to homeless people, if they were like, oh, here's a free home, then that creates a precedent of like, oh, you cannot work and have a home. So like they don't want to do that. So I mean, I think one thing that people don't talk about, like homelessness is existing. I think it's like a way to like scare us into essentially doing these things that we don't want to do to live because you're constantly reminding us of like, oh, you want a quiet quit? You want to go on a strike? This is what your life could be. You're going to be homeless. And not only that, we're going to make it so that you can't exist as a homeless person in this society. Because if people like if you go to New York right now, all these uh, brunchy folks, they eat on the sidewalk. They have all these like houses built up on the sidewalk. People are drinking mimosas, but you can't have a tan. But what are these makeshift things? So I mean, it, it goes to show you like it's not even like the idea of taking public space. It's like who's taking public space. And if it's somebody who's not serving capitalism, you can't take a public space. The housing question, to really understand the connection with Democrats and capitalist understandings of housing, we have to think about how housing, how you know, property structures space, right? How capitalism structures space. And so, you know, when I was thinking about this before we were recording, I keep going back to um, James Scott, Seeing Like a State, which is, you know, an amazing book. If people haven't read it, absolutely pick up a copy. But in the first, you know, couple of chapters, one of the things that he talks about is land enclosure. And he's talking about this structure specifically in France in which sort of towards the end of monarchism, there was an attempt to actually create a tax regime where individuals were taxed. And to do that, individuals had to exist legally, but they didn't at that point. They existed as communities within feudalism. They pay taxes as communities. They held land as communities. 
when the French government went to these towns to figure out who owned what, what they found was that every single community broke up their understanding of land differently. And that it wasn't really based on ownership, it was based on use. And so they had to standardize all of that. And to do that, they had to fragment the commons. They had to sit there and go, you own this piece of land and you own this piece of land. They did that. They made maps. And they went back two years later. They realized nobody was following the maps. But what they did was they started charging taxes based on the maps. And so people had to start making money on the land to pay the taxes based on the maps that have nothing to do with their lives, right? And what that was was the creation of property, right? Because when we think about property, you know, there's this fiction of, you know, stateless capitalism, right? You have like Murray Rothbard, Ayn Rand types who are talking about, you know, capitalism can exist without the state. But really, we can see the fallacy of that when we look at the, at the question of property, right? The question of exclusion from property or exclusion from space. Um, not only is it fragmenting public space, but we start to look at um, the way that all of a sudden property has to exist, right? And, and so in the Rust Belt, for example, after the, the financial crisis, cities, Cleveland, Buffalo, Detroit, got all this money from the federal government to tear houses down. And they were tearing down like 50 houses a day in these cities, right, for years on end. And these are cities that have people that don't have housing. And so you, you sit there and you go, well, why are they tearing houses down? When there are people that don't have housing, right? When there's more vacant houses than there are people without housing, how can you justify tearing the houses down? And the answer was, we need to create a real estate market again. Because if you allow people to just squat, there's no reason to pay for housing. And if there's no reason to pay for housing, housing ceases to be a commodity, right? Like this is actually the important part, that capitalism has to function through that exclusion of access. Otherwise, commodities can't have the scarcity necessary to allow them to be priced, right? There can't be a supply that is lower than a demand, for example, unless you artificially limit supply, right? And so when we really see this, we can really see not just the way that capitalism sort of atomizes us, right? Creates um, us as people who live in individual housing units, as opposed to as people who conceive of ourselves as living in communities. Um, but it also really comes to highlight the relationship between the state and the police and capital. And how we have to understand capital as a content of the state. It is a definition of life that is imposed through policing purely and can't exist outside of that, right? It's the fallacy of quote-unquote anarcho-capitalism, which isn't a thing that really exists for this exact reason, right? And so when we're looking at why are Democrats engaging in techniques that involve pushing people off the streets, this is exactly why. It's a capitalist political party. They're trying to maintain property. They're trying to maintain property value, right? And this is why you see this happen in cities where gentrification is really horrible at a much ha at a much faster clip than you see it in cities where there's like open housing stock. That really makes me think about the beginning of like uh, workhouses in England in the 1830s and the poor law reforms. And it goes back to what you were saying more about um just that making it really undesirable to be poor, you know, like needing a group of people who are in that position. And that workhouses were something that were introduced by liberals, progressives, you know, like this as a form of like changing the sort of poor relief system. So instead of giving people money so they could be supported and stay with their families or whatever, people were put into these institutions where they're separated from their kids, from their husbands and wives or whatever. And it's meant to be so undesirable that you would only seek it if you were sort of desperately needed it or whatever. 
um, as a way to like save on taxes for like money to people basically it's really fucked up and it's like this was part of a sort of social reform progressive like project and I think we see echoes of that in this the other thing that I wanted to bring up is like you talked about atomizing and isolating and like how capitalism does that one thing that I think about specifically in New York is that homeless encampments do offer this radical idea of like what it looks like to take back a public space and to collectively like meet together, you know? And like, that's the other thing that I was thinking about last night when I was high, this whole idea of what happens if we just allow homeless encampments to spread and take over, then people who are not homeless start interacting with homeless people as we do, like people in the city do. Then you form these connections and these relationships, and then it becomes perfectly normal for people to take over public spaces. And then what does that mean? Then we have to provide services in public spaces like bathrooms and showers because the public would start requesting and like asking for these things and more of a relationship they form with homeless folks so i think part of the 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 cleaning which is with the term eric adams is used which is absolutely disgusting in terms of like moving homeless people the whole i think a huge part of it is also just like destroying the notion that we own public spaces like you do not own a public space and we want to let you know that and we want you out um so i think that really and and the addition aspect of that, too, is like when you look at homelessness in New York, like a huge chunk of it are like black people, too. So there's like a racial component of it, too, when you really want to add it. This whole idea of like black people are not allowed to take up space. And then specifically, if you're homeless, you're not allowed to take up public space. So I wanted to bring that in. It's like very much related to work, but also just related to the idea that the government owns everything and corporations own everything, including the spaces that we exist in. Well, speaking of corporations owning everything, here's some words from our sponsors. Across the U.S., in large cities, often controlled by Democrats, a war on the poor, and specifically on encampments of houseless people, has been increasingly waged over the past year. In San Francisco, the city's mayor, London Breed, recently declared it was time to, quote, be less tolerant of all the bullshit that has destroyed our city, in an effort to ramp up police harassment of the poor and unhoused. In Portland, city officials openly toyed with the idea of forcing, quote, up to 3,000 homeless people into massive temporary shelters staffed by the Oregon National Guard. While in California, the Democratic governor, Gavin Newsom, has pushed for, quote, care courts, which threaten to place those who do not complete state directives under involuntary hospitalization, a policy which mirrors efforts already underway in New York. Bans against camping, panhandling, sleeping in one's car have also proliferated. Last spring, for instance, Tennessee made it a felony to camp on public-owned land. In Missouri, those caught sleeping on state property could now get jail time and fines under a new law that just went into effect on January 1st. Other new laws outlaw encampments in LA next to schools and forbid houseless folks from sleeping on public transit in New York. In the progressive bastion of Asheville, North Carolina, over a dozen mutual aid organizers also now face trumped-up charges of felony littering for supporting protests against sweeps of encampments. This shift in many liberal cities to criminalize, attack, and ban encampments shows just how much the Democratic Party has continued to move to the right while embracing Republicans' line on combating rising crime. Instead of mobilizing the state's forces to house people and meet their most basic needs in a period of mass pandemic and a growing housing crisis, liberal governments across the country have instead mobilized their forces to attack some of the most vulnerable. Want to know more about what's driving these ongoing attacks on the houseless and how it relates to the housing crisis? itself, we sat down with Gifford Hartman, a longtime radical organizer in the Bay Area and a former squatter. Movements arise, like say the George Floyd uprising, and um, there's some changes, there's some um, 
movement towards reforms to police brutality and things like that. But then there's kind of a, a backlash. And I think right now we're kind of suffering through a backlash. And I think that's kind of a pattern that happens is um, there's pushback, kind of penal reform, trying to rein the police in a little bit. And then the kind of the backlash means just the police have more power and they have more power to really kind of brutalize on house people. And I think we're living through that right now. I think the the trends go, you know, like back and forth and the pendulum has swung in the direction where right now in San Francisco, there's constant sweeps of tents and how and house people living on the streets. There's a lot of media support given to that. And it's kind of like, as I said, the tail wags the dog and then they start doing all this stuff. And the pushback hasn't really, activism hasn't really been able to kind of stand up to that and stop it or even challenge it right now, at least what I see. Booms happen and property values go up and vacancies go to almost zero, the cops crack down harder. And I think there have been periods, at least in my lifetime um, here in the Bay Area, where there's kind of a lull or there's a bottom of the trough when maybe there's more vacancies, a little bit more wiggle room, the cops quite, aren't quite so brutal. But when things are peaking or when the economy's, you know, in its dynamic kind of high points, that's where I see the repression is the worst because there's more people to complain. There's more people whose, you know, values are tied to property and who are more willing to push the cops to brutalize unhoused people. And, um, but you know, right now it's kind of, um, fraying because there's a lot of tech layoffs. Yet the agenda of sweeping tents and unhoused people off the streets is kind of still at kind of a rapid pace. So I don't know how much longer it'll last, but right now it's at a pretty high point. As we speak, the weather's awful and the sweeps haven't really stopped and there aren't enough shelter beds to house all the unhoused folks. So it's really a crisis. It's not only just a, you know, a human crisis, but it's a health crisis because people out in the cold rain are more vulnerable to getting sick and dying. And it's, it should be the time where we're doing the opposite. We're making sure everybody's housed and it just certainly isn't happening. Even though San Francisco, the mayors have been Democrats, I, I believe since the mid sixties, the Democrats aren't a monolith and they're not all progressive and even the progressive ones aren't that good. But the ones that are in power now, like Mayor um, London Breed, are moderates. And um, they really are more, believe in the police more, and they believe in using police for social crimes. And when they're not moderates, it's a little less bad, but it's not better, it's just less bad. I, I don't know if that really makes sense. Because I, I don't think there's ever been a political regime in San Francisco that wasn't pro-cop. You know, everybody loves the cops, everybody co sees the cops as... Um, ways to enforce the social values of society, which are private property and all that, and it just never stops. It just depends how brutal they are. And again, as I said earlier, it goes through waves. And presently, we're in a brutal wave. And the only alternative to that is a less brutal wave. And so my opinion, there's never a time when the cops don't, you know, run rapid. But just right now, but right now, they're actually at the high point that they've been in a long time. And now we speak with Javier from the National Coalition on Homelessness in San Francisco. We talk about the current wave of attacks against houseless people in big cities and how they mirror historic attempts at policing and repressing the poor. The income that you need to rent a two-bedroom apartment by the city's own estimation, you need an hourly wage of about sixty-one fifty to have an apartment like that. So the income gap is becoming more evident than ever nowadays. There's a 9% increase in homelessness for every $100 increase in rent. So it's like if healthcare, housing, education all gets more expensive, but wages don't go up, people are going to lose their housing. 
Um, so I think people need to understand and how similar we are to the unhoused population and how important it is to recognize that we should have solidarity with each other because if we're fighting against each other, then guess who's winning? The millionaires in the building. Hmm? We're suing the city because when they do these sweeps, they're taking people's belongings, which is illegal search and seizure, and cruel and unusual punishment because the shelter that they're offering a lot of times isn't adequate for the folks um, who are being swept. We're looking for permanent supportive housing for folks, and it's not there. And if you're telling people that they have to move across the street every day in the morning, then it kind of shows... I think a social and kind of cultural understanding that mirrors the the ugly laws people uh, had in place, especially in America for a long time, which is homeless people are not supposed to be seen and they're supposed to be criminalized. And speaking of things that probably shouldn't be seen again, some words from our sponsors. From resisting sweeps, setting up autonomous warming centers, to taking over vacant buildings, over the past few years, there's been a wide array of expressions of solidarity, direct action, and mutual aid in the face of attempts by the state to displace and destroy the lives of houseless people across the U.S. But these projects and actions haven't come out of nowhere. Building on the radical history of groups in the Bay Area such as the Diggers and the White Panthers, who set up free stores, grocery programs, and squatted buildings. Starting in the 1980s out of the anti-nuclear movement, peace activists began sharing free vegan food in a protest of the U.S. war budget under the banner Food Not Bombs. In the late 1980s, Food Not Bombs in San Francisco faced over 1,000 arrests for sharing free food publicly and taking part in demonstrations. Soon another group, Homes Not Jails, evolved out of the same scene and began to open up and squat vacant housing, part of a wave of other houseless activist groups that sprouted nationwide, following the economic recession of the 1980s. Chapters of Homes Not Jails worked to open squats weekly to covertly house people, while also organizing public housing takeovers, which thrust squatting into the spotlight of the mass media. Again, here's Gifford Hartman talking about squatting in the 1990s. There's been a wave of um, really successful squats in the 1970s. One group was called the White Panthers that did it in the Lower Haight neighborhood, and they were modeled on the Black Panthers. So they actually squatted, but actually created community programs for things like food distribution. They defended their squats. They fortified their squats. And that was a tradition that kind of preceded my period of squatting. But so there were both looking at the squatting in Europe, but also the previous generations doing it here in San Francisco. Um, I moved to the Bay Area in 1986. I lived in Berkeley for most of the beginning of the years I was here. From the end of World War II, in the 1940s, the, the population in San Francisco peaked in the mid-20th century. And then it went down. The population decreased by 100,000. In the late 80s, there were still a lot of cracks in the surface of housing. And there was a lot of empty units. There's a lot of abandoned units, and it was a lot, of, a lot of ability to people to find squats. And I was part of that. There were various times where I either wasn't working or had a part-time job, and I chose as a political act to squat. And I began doing that in the late 80s, but most of my success in squatting was in the early 90s. But then I kind of ran up against the contradiction. And groups like Homestead Jails were founded in 1992. I'd already been squatting, um, but then. There was another wave of repression. So in 1990, 
to um, the former chief of police in San Francisco, Frank Jordan, got elected mayor. And by 1993, he was doing something called the Matrix program. And the Matrix program was very much like what Giuliani did in New York with his zero tolerance for broken windows, which is cops would get tough on quality of life crimes, which means like broken windows and graffiti. But it also included food, not bombs. Feedings were attacked by the police and squatters were even, myself included, were attacked and cleared out, even in a way that was not legal. When I succeeded, we squatted covertly. And when we didn't succeed, often we were aligned with groups that, like Homestead Jails, where they were a high-profile group, very media savvy. Well, media savvy might be an overstatement. They were kind of had a media focus. And the media focus was often a double-edged sword. It brought popular understanding of the conditions of the housing stock, but also it was a way for the police to be telegraphed exactly what we were doing and to come down and crack down on our squads. Homes on Jails wouldn't be the last group to take over vacant homes for housing. In the mid-2000s, Take Back the Land, based out of Miami, Florida, worked to block evictions and move unhoused families into foreclosed homes. In the present period, various grassroots groups have organized to stop the sweeping of houses and encampments. Crews in Olympia, Washington and Austin, Texas have been successful in organizing broad campaigns. In Minneapolis, groups have mobilized mass numbers to, at times, halt evictions. In the following interview, we speak with Christian and Post from Minneapolis on the ongoing battle with the city government and police to stop attacks and sweeps on their houseless neighbors. In the summer of 2020, when George Floyd was murdered by Minneapolis police, it raised a lot of people's awareness as to the way that our systems and practices in our city aren't really serving us. Um, I think there was there was a lot of work happening in Minneapolis in particular before that in regard to policing and the way that our systems do or do not serve people. Um, and then in 2020, the awareness just grew exponentially. And because that foundational path had been laid already, we had something to go with. Um, and we can see the direct line between what happened to George Floyd and to the community at George Floyd Square and the way that that also shows up in other spaces in our community, such as with our unhoused neighbors. We, we know that the majority of people that are living at encampments in Minneapolis are indigenous um, immigrant populations or um, black Americans. And so we can see that there is, you know, a specific need and also a real, um, a, you know, a disparity between. And a, and a direct through line to yeah. all of the um, oppression that, that 2020 kind of threw in the face of, of every you know, I mean, person with a heart. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think, yeah. too, we started practicing a lot of mutual aid um, more like much bigger than we ever have historically in the summer of 2020. Uh, we saw lots of people getting involved. There were encampments um, throughout the city as there was uh, for some time because of covid. Um, people were able to stay outside and couldn't be evicted as easily um, at that time. And we saw lots of community getting involved and in doing mutual aid. Um, and that really helped build, I think, uh, a movement that is, you know, sort of beautifully disorganized in many ways, because <laughs> lots of people from lots of different walks of life coming together and showing up for each other. I mean, I think people started to become aware of the way that we are all connected to each other and that 
when when we're taking care of each other, we're all happier, we're all safer, we're actually able to meet needs, and the resources are there. It's a matter of the will. I cannot overemphasize enough how terrible the uh, the boy mayor Frey has been since he took power here in so-called Minneapolis. You know, he ran on ending houselessness and was in majority funded by uh, developers during his campaign. And we've seen what ending houselessness means to Democrats. Uh, it basically means ending visible poverty and ending the lives of houseless people. But frankly, I mean, the number of evictions over the course of the last few years has just skyrocketed. And, you know, our so-called progressive politicians love to give some money to the nonprofit industrial complex and do their private public partnership. And then when there are people who are, quote unquote, uh, resistant to service, that's the, that's the phrase they love to use. They uh, have all of their excuses lined up so that they can just bulldoze people's houses and kick them out of the roofs that are keeping them warm and, and dry. And it's just been a really eye opening thing for a lot of people, I think, to see how our progressive quote unquote establishment here has just fully committed to jackboot thuggery, all in the name of clearing the streets and making it so that people in their uh, kind of four story mixed use uh, condos can can have a, a beautiful view without having to see the poverty that that lifestyle necessitates. You know, in the summer of 2020, there were several council at the time, council members who committed to um, defunding the police. However, that did not come to fruition. Um, since that time, there's been um, increases in the budget to policing in Minneapolis. No decreases, only increases that police haven't been able to spend their whole budget. And yet the city continues to pour more money into them. And what we're seeing happen is unhoused people come together to keep one another safe and also so community is able to stay connected with them and, you know, will be in an encampment and then various levels of discover of government will come in and displace them. And so the people don't have anywhere else to go. So they need to move to a new space together. So what's happening is not housing. What's happening is not even laying a foundation for somebody to be able to get the, the services or support that they may want or need. What's happening is displacement. When somebody hears about an eviction potentially happening, it becomes a situation that's it's almost it's almost kind of magical that people come together and it is kind of chaotic, but it always comes together. And we end up having whether it's people that are doing cop watch or are just neighbors like we had neighbors show up on the first day, the day that the quarry was planned to be evicted on December 28th. Um, I can't tell you how many different people that just live in that area were coming up and asking questions and were appalled at the response from the city um, because really that the quarry encampment was in a space that you could barely see it. You wouldn't know it was there if you didn't know it was there, you know, and yeah. uh, we're talking about by the last day, the day that it was evicted, there were eight people there and over 150 police officers. It was bonkers. And that extreme response is something that when you see it, you can't unsee it. And so we come together in what, you know, you get in where you fit in with whatever skills you have, whatever gifts you have, whatever time you have, you know, and a lot of us show up because we are people who have experienced other forms of trauma or have seen and experienced other forms of oppression too. You can't unsee it once you do. 
In the last few years, mutual aid and autonomous disaster relief efforts have informed projects like Heater Block, the squatting of land for people displaced by climate change-fueled fires, and the setting up of autonomous warming centers in the middle of winter. In the winter of 2021, autonomous groups across Texas also mobilized when the state's electrical grid failed and hundreds of people tragically died due to lack of heat. Autonomous groups have also worked to directly house people. In the Los Angeles area, this has looked like houseless folks taking over homes owned by Caltrans and various groups in the Pacific Northwest occupying and demanding access to hotels in the dead of winter. In Philadelphia in 2020, housing activists squatted and then won the keys to homes for upwards of 50 unhoused families in the midst of the George Floyd Rebellion. And there have been other success stories as well. In Boise, Idaho, after months of ongoing protests by houseless folks and their supporters, the city was pushed to greenlight the building of hundreds of housing units. In Berkeley, California last summer, people once again tore down the fences surrounding People's Park and destroyed machines, stopping the destruction of the autonomous enclave once again. In Sacramento, California, houseless people and their supporters beat back an eviction attempt at Camp Resolution, a parking lot which is home to people living in their vehicles and RVs. Here's two Camp Resolution residents, Sharon and Satara, who speak on the deadly impact of sweeps. I think that the biggest thing is like being treated inhumanely, you know what I mean, or, or rudely or like you're an animal. They're very mean to people, you know what I mean? When they sweep you, they, they take people's stuff and just throw it out. No, don't matter if it matters to them or, you know what I mean, or, you know which, you know, creates mental health issues for some people because people get traumatized from stuff like that. You know what I mean? You just coming in and the only place that they have that they can call home or a, a place of shelter and, you know, stormy times like this, you know, they come and even now it, while it's raining and make them move and tell them, you know, they got to go throw their things out or, you know what I mean? Make them leave without it whatever they you know what I mean whatever no matter if it's important to them or not you know what I mean like I think that's the most messed up part because like I have a friend out here who who lost you know her child's ashes you know what I mean half the half of the people that we're at that we lose contact with and, and every time they sweep that's another half and they're just diminishing people where people are where are people going they're just disappearing and before the you know people who do need like other help with other things, health things and stuff like that. The harm reduction people and stuff like that, that come out and, you know, give people things they need. You know what I mean? They'll, they'll move you, they move you around. Then you can't be found. People can That's die like that. Services. And people die like that all the time, especially, you know, when they move us around, sometimes we got to go to areas that are not necessarily safe, especially the women. You know what I mean? Women die out here all the time. They separate us. Camp resolution was formed because uh, this lot that we're on it was part of the original siting plan, and they spent $617,000 on this for a fence and a parking lot and promised folks that they would uh, that they were going to get them into little tiny houses or trailers so they can get back on their feet and get housing. They swept them off the lot. As soon as they were finished with this, they came, they came and viciously swept them off of the, proper, the other side of the property that we're on and uh, put a fence up and promised those people, and they got nothing, and then didn't even bother to contact them or anything, and just left those people hanging after they signed up for all the services and were denied. And my sister-in-law was one of those people, and she's a quadriplegic, 
and she's still waiting for housing. And we weren't going to have another winter of her being down in, on the county side in the weather, in the water. So that's why we started it. And it's, we're here for safety so we can get back up on our feet. We're human beings. Not to mention, like, half, more than half the camp, you know, a majority of the camp, it, there are males that live here. So please don't get me wrong. But this is the camp of majority women, women you know what I mean, right. who out here who live out here and you know a lot of us you know we're homeless but we're not we're not bums you know what i mean like we're not um we have regular lives like everyone else we have family we have friends you know what i mean like we and we take care of each other you know what i'm saying like and a lot of us have been camping right here for for years years. some of us years up against the county and the city you know what i'm saying but for every success sweeps remain a daily constant in the united states and many attempts to push back by houseless folks and their supporters are met with extreme resistance from law enforcement. So I'm curious what you all think. How can communities continue to organize for change in the face of this brutality? Something that comes to mind is just kind of um, more of some things that have already been happening, basically. Um, and I'm thinking of um, Echo Park that you brought up. Um, and the encampment at Echo Park was really interesting to me because um, it was that's a, a neighborhood in uh, L.A., and it grew to maybe sort of two to three hundred people living there. Um, and as it went on, it kind of like a sense of community developed pretty strongly there um, with support from people in the neighborhood, too. Um, and people had set up like a garden, a community kitchen. There were like meetings, even showers near the end. Like um, it was actually kind of thriving. <laughs> like It was like doing well. And people were like pretty like uh I don't know, politicized or like aware of like what's going on and talking about it and sharing with each other. Um, and yeah, people coming together to resist sweeps and like threats of sweeps of, of the park. Um, and the response to it was one of the most like heavy handed sort of disproportionate seeming things that I'd ever seen. Um, where they had been threatening, the city had been threatening that they were going to do a sweep and they were saying they were going to get everyone into housing. It's like this humanitarian, um, offer of secure housing to people. Um, but they came with like 400 cops and like all the rest of like LAPD's full force, you know, with the helicopters and just like everything they blocked. Um, entrances into Echo Park to stop supporters coming from out of the neighborhood. Um, and basically, yeah, evicted people, fought with people resisting, um, and then put a fence up very quickly, like during this whole thing, um, and closed the park off. And that fence is still up. And that's like, and then what is it now? A year and a half or something? Maybe two years. Um, that that fence has been up. Um, and something I think is like interesting about this example is I really think that the reason that response was so heavy handed is because the very existence of it was disrupting this logic of like rent and landlordism and stuff. Like people were reclaiming the commons, basically like reclaiming public space, using it to meet their needs. And this was incredibly threatening to the city and they needed to shut it down and sort of turn the park back into recreation middle class people basically um and i think you know what we've talked about already like um tom what you were talking about with like enclosure and stuff like i really see that these sweeps like this is such a just a continuation of this and echo park um in a really big way and what you were saying more about just like what happens when we challenge that logic being the most like threatening thing to them you know of just like what happens if it was just like this homeless camp survives and then another encampment another encampment and it basically disrupts everything we know about property and rent and everything anyway. So I think just uh, more of that. 
Yeah. I mean, I would, yeah, I agree with you, Sophie. I think it's like more of what's happening. Like currently in New York, there's still sweeps happening. Like, um, DHS, Department of Homeless Services puts up these like, um, sweep notices. Um, and the way it works is that when these sweeps, sweeps notices go up, like there's a group of people who let each other know that a sweep is about to happen. People show up to the people who are about to be swept. I hate that word swept. Oh my gosh. That's so disgusting. What can we use instead of swept? Um, treated badly by evil Eric Adams. I don't know. Maybe we could use that. Um, but anyway, so like, um, so people will go and talk to the people who are in the encampment who are going to be swept and ask them like, what type of support would you like? Like, do you want us to help you us move your stuff? Do you want us to stand, you know, it, it, when the cops and like, so the sanitation department comes usually during these cleanups and like throws away people's things. And because, you know, if you don't serve capitalism, your stuff, you don't matter. So definitely your stuff doesn't matter. One thing that has been happening is that people have been showing up for people who are about to be, um, have their things thrown out and either moving the things for them or supporting them or standing in the way for, in front of the police or like documenting it. And I think that's like a huge way to just like show up right now. If you can use sick leave, block out time on your calendar at work. If you know something happening down the street, like this is like something like you could do now. And I think that's really important. Like this is solidarity that we should show and we should show up for our comrades because they are on the ground of fighting for us having housing as a human right. And that's why we should show up for them and to support them. Another item that I wanted to bring up, I don't know if y'all heard about Anarchy Row, which happened last year, uh, where like SRG, which is a strategic response group, showed up. This is a counterterrorism group, y'all. Showed up to get people out of a uh, an encampment in Tompkins Square, which was deemed Anarchy Row. I think it was like five people. Five people! Brought in SRG or counterterrorism groups. It just goes to show you the extent to which, like, houses people taking a public space is a threat to I- the idea of property as we know it, is a, is a threat to capitalists, and is a threat to landlords like Eric Adams. Eric Adams is a landlord. I don't know if y'all know that. This, the New York, the New York City mayor is a landlord if you need to know anything of to, as to why they're sweeping homeless people. Landlords run everything and they have rats like Eric Adams, because he had rats and he was supposed to pay a fine and he didn't pay a fine because he's a landlord. I guess just going back to that is like, yeah, show up for people now. Like the need now is like when sweeps are happening is for people to show up in place with people. And the other part of it, I want to say this, and this is a wild idea, but I've been thinking about it for a while. What if we all stop paying rent? What if we all did? What if we got together with all of our friends and stopped paying rent? And I know this is wild and I know some people might be like, oh, no, Marcella, we're going to get evicted. But what if we paid rent and we all fought the cops and they're trying to pay us when, when, when they're trying to evict all of us? So, like, that's another part of it is, like, showing up to people's evictions, trying to come up together to come up with a long strategy. Because houses people right now are fighting for us to, like, have housing as a human right. We can meet them on the other end and say, actually, we're not going to pay rent as long as you're doing this because we're that's like solidarity. When I'm thinking about how to resist displacement, you know, what I go back to is squatter movements that existed in Europe, right? Like the social center movements in the seventies and eighties. Um, but also squatting that happened in the Rust Belt in the two thousands, right? And like what was unique about those situations? Like others have, have existed obviously, but what was unique about those situations is that squatting became about more than just space. It also became about autonomy and self-defense, right? So in those situations, what would happen is in these Rust Belt squats, people would like lock down a whole street and take over a house. And then just that was just their space, <laughs> you know, and the cops just couldn't get back there or didn't want to get back there. Um, and some of those squats held out for years, like years and years and years. Um, and we see that in Europe, too. And so what that does, though, is it it accomplishes something really important, which I think we have to sort of shift in our discussions of this question, which is that the question isn't just about housing, the question's about space, 
right? And very specifically, how we understand space. So currently, when we talk about a neighborhood or when city politicians talk about a neighborhood, they don't mean what I think a lot of us mean. Like a lot of us, when we talk about our neighborhoods, we mean like our neighbors, right? The people that live around the corner, the old lady up the street that feeds the cats, like whatever it happens to be, you know, like you, you have a community that you live in, at least where I live. When city politicians talk about a neighborhood, what they mean is real estate. They mean this fragmented space of commodified housing where individual houses can just be slotted in and slotted out and new residents could just be slotted in and slotted out. And the space becomes reduced down to its physical form, right? And within all capitalist understandings of space, that is what happens. Space gets reduced down to the commodification of that space, right? And so when we're talking about that inscription into our spaces, you know, I was saying earlier, that doesn't occur without the ability to get arrested for trespassing. And so this becomes a fight against the police as much as it's a fight against housing, because at the end of the day, the enforcement of that structuring of space comes through the projection of police force into that space, right? Whether that's passive, things like surveillance, whether that's active, things like sending a counterterrorism team to evict five people from a park in Manhattan. And so as we're kind of like looking through this, we can take some interesting sort of examples. I mean, the Paris Commune had a whole discourse that talked just about how they were going to rebuild the city. Like, what is the city going to look like without property? How are we going to restructure our use of space? Who gets to decide how to use these big public spaces, right? These were the big discussions that were happening. The Situationist International had a whole discourse on building conceptual cities and avant-garde cities. And, you know, graffiti was a big part of that. Because what is graffiti? Graffiti is the marking of people's presence in space. Why do cities crack down on graffiti so hard? Every single time someone puts a tag up, that's a gap in police coverage that's being marked. Literally every single time, right? And so when we're talking about these questions, we have to push this into a question of capitalism in general, but that makes it a question of the state. We can't talk about capitalism in isolation from that. And so we have to really talk about how our spaces are fragmented and the ways that things like even encampments or squats or things like this that are defended, that are able to be sort of preserved isn't the right word, are able to maintain their autonomy. Those become sort of the models of different ways to live in some ways, right? These become the places where people are experimenting with different types of living, whether it's by choice or not. Uh, but these are the spaces that get eliminated because of that specific dynamic, right? That they are fundamentally violating the entire concept of property in their very existence. And that's why we see the crackdowns happening the way that they are. Democrats are just as you know, complicit in that as Republicans are. It's it's functionally no different, especially after the George Floyd uprising, where you really see in a lot of Democratic cities them hiring a lot more cops, giving them a lot more guns, like doing the same stuff that, that happened in more conservative cities, right? The gap is almost non-existent. That's going to do it for us. Once again, this has been the It's Going Down crew squatting the offices of It Could Happen Here. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you soon. Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. 
Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.